Hello and welcome to episode 203, I almost said 302, <laughs> of the Crate and Crowbar. It is the 24th of August, 2017. My name is Chris Thurston and tonight I'm joined by Tom Francis. Hello. And recurring guest John Roberts. Hello. It's another Suspicious Development special. <laughs> Speaking of Suspicious Developments, you have some heat sig business this week? Pod voice question mark? <laughs> sort of. Um, I've been uh, working pretty hard to get the... Uh, the next beta ready and that is now out of my hands it's going out very slowly to small groups of people so um don't get too excited if you're waiting for it but um <laughs> it is uh it's you know happening <laughs> it's like it's not done or nearly done it's just now it's kind of out of my hands for a little bit like mm. the most of the work is going to be bug fixing which um programmer john uh will take the lead on and I get to not relax in any way and not take a break in any way, but just work on a different kind of thing, which is going to be like doing trailers and uh, prepping for launch and things. I'm relaxing. It's great. Because, <laughs> well, they might have said it, but you haven't told me. But no one's specifically said the art in this game is bad. as their beta, fa- beta feedback. So the beta feedback. Beta feedback. <laughs> I can barely read the beta feedback <laughs> because I'm too emotional about it. Um, I think during this beta, I might just sort of have to pay either you or other John to read it for me <laughs> and summarize it in a like friendly way so that I don't have to read any hostile criticism. John, as the f- the first John, I think, <laughs> do you get to just be John or are you art John or first John? I think I'm just art John. Mm. That's it's that it's very contextual. Mm. I don't know. You haven't <laughs> mixed me up with Music John. No. Yeah. Which was more of a problem on Gunpoint when we had John Robert Matz yeah. involved. Whole His name goes a long way before you know whether or not it's going to be him <laughs> or you. You really needed to get Matt Johns onto that. <laughs> um, and Robert Matt, I guess. That would have that would have finished the, the pointlessly confusing <laughs> cycle. Also news this week, it has to be quite a newsy week, it's because it's Gamescom, mm. um, which none of us are at, obviously, and have, have you guys been following it particularly closely? Because I haven't. Not really. <laughs> it seemed to be mostly um, console stuff that came out of the presentations. Mm. Lots of talking about exclusives for the Xbox S or X, X or whatever the hell the next one is that's going to be good and not bad. Yeah, they released, they, you know, I saw the phrase Xbox One X Scorpio Edition, <laughs> which, bless them. They, yeah, it's like a, it's like a ball of brand words falling down a hill, but, um, that naming convention at the moment. It's almost as bad as graphics cards naming. Oh, it's that bad, surely. Actually, no, graphics card naming is kind of course corrected a little bit, hasn't it? Like, you just think of things as numbers now, right? Yes, but there's there's letters in there as well, I think and they're suspicious. It helps that um, that AMD sort of dropped out of it a bit. Like mm-hmm. they're not as competitive as they used to be, and so now you only really have to remember Nvidia's series because <laughs> mm. the worst was when like one of them was using lower numbers than the other one, and then the generations kept going on and on and on until one of them caught up with where the other one used to be. So like you know, I don't know Nvidia's seven eighty or something was um, uh, there used to be a radio on card called that. I can't actually remember what numbers it was, but. Yeah, they merged at some point. I guess people don't really think about the like the names that they get given by retailers now because you just buy the cheapest, yeah. the most accessible version of the number you want rather mm. than, you know, do you get this company's, you know, Faro 2 Extreme 
Obsidian Edition yeah. or whatever. With little red glowing lights on it. Mm, yeah, or and a picture of uh, like a, a, a CGI woman made of liquid steel. <laughs> <laughs> Why are they always so like primitive? The you know the CGI women on these card boxes because it always is a CGI woman. They always look like they're sort of nineties era yeah. magazine covers or something. They look like they look like how virtual reality looks in TV from the nineties <laughs> and noughties. Like I, I think maybe like it's a separate you know separate set of like digital art disciplines as the bad half <laughs> they didn't know what they were doing then maybe maybe it's just not companies that put a lot of f you know they don't have like an art department to sort that stuff so are they like marketing them now as vr ready or whatever yeah because mm-hmm. hd was you know everyone was just saying oh, this card is hd ready but you know it's a fast to really say your graphics card is vr ready because it only is if everything else is right <laughs> yeah yeah but i've seen i've seen i've seen pcs build as vr ready which makes sense mm. yeah speaking of things that won't be either vr or uh probably require an amazing graphics card um one of the big announcements of this week although there's not many details yet is that relic are making age of empires 4 mm. oh it's a relic is it yeah holy shit yeah i missed that part. yeah it makes that exciting news yeah mm. <laughs> yeah because i think everyone was expecting them to announce age of empires uh 4 because at the pc gamer show at e3 this year um they had a Microsoft man uh, who was there to do what he can. And he, he, what he could do was announce the remake of Assass- uh, Assassin's Creed, Age of Empires 2, mm. which is the sort of HD edition, a little bit like what they've just done with StarCraft Brood War, what Blizzard have just done. So, so a sort of, you know, re- complete new, all new sp- sprites and stuff, but the same game. But And then he hinted that we'll have something else to announce, which pre- obviously is this. Uh, but the, yeah, the surprise is that Relic are making it, which is really interesting because I've not, they've not made a RTS like Age of Empires. I, I would say that they kind of stood out over the years for making RTSs that aren't like mm-hmm. the Age of Empires sort of, uh, Command and Conquer model. Yeah, their big thing was, um, getting away from drag select and attack move mm. and making things fall from the sky. Mm. and having like forcing you to get out on the map like you yeah. gotta take points and hold them the to... kind of whole anti-turtling built into your yeah uh, main design so... i mean the last person to take the helm of age of empires oh, wasn't it chris taylor yeah with age of empires online which was um kind of a, a weird thing where it went free to play and um don't think it did terribly well no i don't think, I think it, it did. shut down now isn't it yeah i think it struggled almost immediately and so that was, if you know, whether that was the the total annihilation slash supreme commander kind of expertise yeah. being poured into it. So yeah, it'll be interesting. I can't to see. remember though. So was it um, was it actually like gas powered games doing it, or was it just Chris Taylor? Yeah, was, I microphone? think it was gas powered games that did oh. it. I think, but yeah, so that license has now passed to another one of the surviving <laughs> um, strategy studios. Um, presumably Chris Creators. Taylor is um, off doing his own thing now. He's doing something indie. Don't know what. Cool. But- Hmm. But yeah, it'd be interesting to see what they make. I, I don't, uh, I remember saying this at the live pod we did at Rezzed that I guess, I think someone asked it from the audience, like, what game series is your blind spot, like, that you haven't played, despite the fact you probably like it. And for me, that's Age of Empires. So I'm the yeah. qualified person to talk about this, really. I don't think I ever played it. <laughs> I played Rise of Nations and I mm. get them confused sometimes yeah. and think I've played Age of Empires, but actually I've played Rise of Nations. It was the one RTS I was actually good at. Hmm. Huh. 
I don't know why it was that one as opposed to Command and Conquer or StarCraft, but it was the one that I got hooked into and could actually compete in multiplayer, which has never happened oh, before or since. Because it does seem to have a much broader reach than other RTSs. Mm. A lot of, mm. I know a lot of people who that's the only RTS they've ever liked and they like that one a lot. What? What? Why was that? What was? What was it about it that made it click? I think it was fairly simple mechanics, or maybe it was just the first set of mechanics I properly understood with its like three resources and it's how you do workers and, and build troops and stuff. And the strategy itself was pretty simple. It's like you wanted your blob of units, but if they had blobs of units of a certain type, then you got the one that was good against them. And that was kind of manageable. An army of rocks. <laughs> uh, and then... I think it's massively dorky to say it, but I think all the history they built into it played a big part as well. Because mm. I think for a huge amount of people, that was the first experience they had with interesting real history. Because hmm. it essentially had a encyclopedia built into the game. So while you were looking at your centurion units, which were exceptionally powerful infantry, you could also just go and look at, find out, oh, why, what were they actually and why are they called this? And hmm. Was it like set in just one time period or did it progress through the ages like Civ and Rise of Nations? It's like fast Civ, right? Like you start off with case people. They were quite constrained. Um, So the first one went to kind of late, just post-Roman Empire, I think. Mm. And then the second one had a little bit of overlap, but then went into medieval era. And I think, I can't remember the third one, play a lot. I think it probably tried to do everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is going to be interesting to see where they take number four if they constrain themselves to a single era or they try and do everything or the trailer which is just slow pan over art plus voiceover does goes from i think ancient to um like the last so the first image i think is like julius caesar on the steps of Mm. rome and the last image is like spanish conquistadors in South America, um, at with like, and you know, showing like both native South Americans and native North Americans, like charging into battle. So, presumably, it goes from like ancient Europe to New World kind of thing. Yeah, that would be my guess. Dawn of the Gunpowder Age is a good place to Mm. kind of finish because that's when strategy just starts changing rapidly. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. Like, it plus you you don't have to make flying units then. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, so interesting, and I, I'm I'm really curious to see what Relic do with it because they're good at making RTSs, and <laughs> as ever, there's only ever at any given time a couple of studios in the world mm. actively make working on that genre at scale. So, yeah. A uh, small miscellaneous bit of news is that uh, XCOM Two is free this weekend. Hmm. Worth knowing. Which is in advance of the expansion coming out next week yeah like tuesday i want to say i guess so yeah i think so the expansion comes out i think on the same day as absolver which i'm really really looking forward to mm. uh, which is the multiplayer online martial arts game um are you hopeful you'll finally be absolved for your sins well i mean i've been dishonored twice now so. <laughs> <laughs> absolved or your money back yeah and yeah and then this is a, it's a crazy month really because that stuff's all happening at the same time then uh Destiny on consoles is the week after that. Mm-hmm. And then uh, and then I think Dishonored 2 Death of the Outsider is the week after that. 
So I must have tried so hard to get the uh, Dishonored and the XCOM add-on sequel kind of thing to come out on the same day like they did the first time around. Mm. Really? Yeah. That was that was a very hard day for <laughs> massive dorks. Yeah. Well, it's a hard day for people who work from home at a sort of self-set pace, really. Like that's the that's the issue with this. It's fine. If uh, if you can be if you can be trusted not to do these things, but no, I think we're going to lose the first half of September. Other uh, announcements from Gamescom was and all I've written down, thanks to the thoroughness of I think Tom's notes, is the phrase Jurassic thingy. <laughs> Yeah, I don't actually remember what it's called, but there's a Jurassic thingy, right? <laughs> I think it was evolved or unleashed or Jurassic Park. Yeah. Parked. Park. Park <laughs> it up. Park it up. Park it up with the Jurassics. From from amusement theme park specialists Frontier and all the excellent people there. Your old company. <laughs> yes. Lovely people with expertise in that kind of area. Mm. And so it seems like a genuinely great fit, and I can't believe it's never been done before. Yeah, yeah it's nuts. I was, yeah, the reaction to it's been really, really positive. On Twitter, everyone's just like, "Oh my god, I need exactly this." Is it so? Like the the little bit of footage they released, or like the little trailer announcement thing, has like the T Rex stomping out of its paddock and eating somebody. Mm. Surely that's like what everyone wants to see, but it's also completely the fail state for the yeah. game. <laughs> like, I mean, is it's not going to be dinosaur theme park crisis manager right is it presumably unless you know you fuck up i assume it'll be something similar to sim cities like natural disasters mm. and stuff like that i can imagine like a if they did like a campaign that a series of mm. disaster scenarios that you've got to fix um but i also i think i could get quite into a game of this where nothing goes wrong <laughs> like it could be quite satisfying to have no dinosaurs go rampant and <laughs> yeah. nothing exciting happens in my park all you get to do is see actual dinosaurs a little pop-up window says like our scientists have discovered that they can combine <laughs> ability to talk to velociraptors with invisibility <laughs> and being huge and no empathy would you Research? like shall we do this <laughs> sure that's a bad film <laughs> uh, one of the only times i've ever i've ever been actually unable to stop laughing in the cinema Jurassic World and I usually am a pretty you know quiet focused cinema guy because I you know hate it when other people obviously but the entire every the entire crowd was having such a great time at the expense of I think what they wanted the tone of that film to be that yeah um but no this is a good it is a good fit and I was thinking because I mean part of the fun of um Roller Coaster Tycoon or or um or Civ or um not Civ SimCity is breaking things mm. so the flip side too wouldn't it be nice to actually get it right and nothing goes wrong is i can i it might be fun to treat this like you know like one of those physics games where you set something up and just like watch it go completely to pieces yeah i don't know what the dinosaur equivalent of firing two roller coasters into each other is <laughs> i wouldn't be surprised if they if the design of it sort of pushes you to take more risks, like people get bored and they want to see the dinosaurs closer up and mm. like all the, all the safest precautions that get you the least happiness of your mm. attendees. And so you're always like, encouraged to put it right on the knife edge of, is there a horrible, <laughs> yeah. predictable dinosaur? Yeah, maybe one happen. death isn't a bad thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> one is spicy. <laughs> Two's a lawsuit. Um, yeah, I, I guess that's the interesting thing. I, I don't have no idea how, is it Warner Brothers has Jurassic Park? I don't know, but how um, how flexible the license is because mm. people, you know, because it's a licensed game, 
that's where I, I guess my concern comes in that you, it might not be kind of keen on, you know, becoming like a dinosaur murder park <laughs> simulator because, you know, if it were a fact, because it probably nothing stopping someone from making this as a kind of Jurassic Park fan game under a different name, mm. then you can make it more of a black comedy where you are pushed to take more risks and more power to them if, if they have that freedom within such a big license. But well, most... that'd be very faithful to the films. <laughs> the film's all about mm. the parks taking absurd risks and <laughs> being yeah. completely reckless and stupid. But you, you see what I mean about like traditionally those kind of big entertainment licenses tend not to become like dark comedies about yeah. how lethal and horrible we don't want to damage the dinosaur brand. <laughs> yeah, which is exactly the sort of thing. I mean, to, to defend Jurassic World briefly, and not that this is a film podcast, but somehow they managed to make a film about the impossibility of making a sequel to Jurassic Park because of corporate meddling. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it's a, it's a meta victory if literally in no other possible mm. way. It is. It is in the tier of films that is on Netflix, and I haven't watched it and probably won't. <laughs> you really should. You really should watch I, I'm going to say this everywhere. So um, I'm like, I've seen it twice, even though it's terrible because uh, I was, you know, I remember my sister over Christmas and just, you have to see, if you like, it's a, it, I can't think of a better recent film to laugh at with friends hmm. because. Yeah. I heard Chris Pratt was a jerk in it though. Yes, that, he's a total jerk. That. But his, his unfathomable animal magnetism <laughs> um, is the only thing Velociraptors truly respect. <laughs> And that's not a joke. That's true. That's a plot point. They, you know, they do respect him as a, as Chris Pratt, as you would. He is, he's, well, no, he's not. He's Andy from Parks and Rec, but, you know. Um, but yeah, so Jurassic thingy. Who knows what it's actually called? We certainly don't. There was a new Overwatch short. Yeah. The May one. You have opinions about these things, Chris. Yeah, I do. They're so bad. <laughs> actually, so, I do. Did you, do you like, did anyone like it? Uh, yeah, I quite like this one. I found it quite cute. It was very cartoony mm. <laughs> and, uh, very basic, but it had, um, I was like a little bit emotional when the robot did the robot thing. <laughs> <laughs> did you not, was that not telegraphed a million miles away from like a million other different, uh, better bits of animated comp fiction about robots that do stuff? <laughs> oh, it's certainly been done before. Yeah. Um, I think I foresaw it, you know, Shortly before it happened, but not too long before it happened. I feel like it justifies its existence for the 10 seconds where she has cryogenic bedhead. <laughs> yeah, that's which is yeah. great. Like, so I will, I will say this. I, I have, given that I like a lot of rubbish, I feel like I'm not in a position to ever judge <laughs> anything. Um, but I really don't like what Blizzard are doing with Overwatch. And I feel like, and that's not a useful opinion, really, because obviously loads of people love it and it's got a huge fandom. And actually, well, I think I think one thing that Blizzard are doing well is they're responding to that fandom and they're actively presenting those characters as as the the fandom thinks of them, rather than initially where it's like Soldier seventy six is a very serious character in the entire <laughs> fandom. It's like, no, he's the dad, and then to which the response is, okay, <laughs> he's the dad now. Here's his barbecue, barbecue outfit. outfit. <laughs> yeah, um, but um. Yeah, there's something really off about it, I think. And that's what I would say is that the, the, the sort of the art direction and animation side of it, the sort of, um, and the music and stuff, that's all good. Mm. Fine. Plenty of, you know, important not to lose track of the other disciplines that are working at full, you know, steam. And that includes 
the people who had to figure out what May's hair looks like after she's just been cryogenically unfrozen, and they did a good job. Mm. The thing that I think keeps keeps striking me about the, all of these now is how bad the writing is, to the point of the thing I, I said today on Twitter, which was that I think, because I kind of agree that like there are sort of charming little moments in it. I think it's, um you know, it's derivative, which would be my other problem with it, but, um, but the entire thing would work as one of those 10 minute Pixar shorts that run behind, but runs before a big film that has no words in it. Mm. it the entire, it doesn't need any words. Mm. The quality yeah. of the animation is good enough that, and the story is unsophisticated enough that every single plot beat in that, in every one of the, film, the shorts that they've done never requires a character to, to say anything because mm. they don't really have character. They're just, they say exposition constantly. Like I, I don't think, Overwatch has had a single ounce of character writing yet. They've just said motivation and exposition at each other. And, um, and I find that sort of interesting because I do think Blizzard know what they're doing. I don't think, I think it's, I think it's over the top to presume too much intent and something that, you know, struck me when, you know, when I was overseas last month was that the games industry is the big game, the, the these sort of big multiplayer games operate internationally companies are starting to think more about how to produce stuff that crosses international language culture boundaries quickly and easily that you know um i can i might you know the obvious thing to compare a lot of these things to is the tf2 shorts which are brilliant bits of clever writing more than anything else the animation's good mm. and, and stuff but and the the well voice acted, but predominantly those things are memorable because the scripts are really clever, mm. and I mean particularly by the standards of game marketing stuff. And I think that the there was another Overwatch video last week, the Junkrat one, which is appalling. It's it's just anti comedy. It's I was I was going to bring that up <laughs> to point out that I thought it had two or three bits of genuinely good comic timing and physical acting. Mm. Like the whole thing kind of flops at the end and there are terrible moments in it, but there's a couple of genuinely good jokes in there, I thought. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. I mean maybe I just hate this thing for <laughs> no reason. But um but I mean I think well, compared to any of the TF two shorts, which are very similar. Oh yeah. That's it's, that's it's what, not a comparison. Yeah. But the thing about the TF two shorts is they have a lot of them are quite dependent on puns or like sort of I can't imagine like I can't imagine them being, for example, translated mm. very easily. Like, I mean, obviously, you know, a lot of translators do a good job, but it's it's very, you know, when something is like a nested pun in English, that's not necessarily going to translate fluidly or whatever. Or, and so the Blizzard approach of like, literally, there will be no depth to anything we write. It will just be exactly surface level. I need to do this. I need to do that. That's this. This person shouldn't be dead. Oh, no. Moment of <laughs> sadness. Moving on. Um I think it's much more accessible and that's, that's fine for what it needs to be, but it just feels so empty. Like um, it has no life to it at all for me. My um, hang up uh, for these things um, is that I always want them to reflect what the character does in game. And so I think like in retrospect, one of my favorite uh, TF2 shorts was the sniper one because it's very funny just generally. Um, and mostly it's about like the sniper's relationship with his parents, which is hilarious. Um, but the one, like the one gamey bit is like, He's sniping at somebody, or he's taking aim at somebody, and he's trying to figure out whether the person has seen him. And uh, when bullets start hitting his tower, he's like, yep, yep, he's seen me. <laughs> and that just mirrors exactly my experience of being a sniper. <laughs> and uh, I love that stuff. And so I was annoyed in the in the May one that she builds this gun to basically 
fire icicles at a thing to climb on the icicles, which she can't do in game, right? Yep. She can make a wall and stand on that and that can get her up. But like the gun in the short just does something totally different to what it does in the game. And the thing it does would be really useful in game, but it doesn't do that. Yeah. And I think there's also the side of it is like, it just, it, you know, there's a, there is again a, a you know, a, a, all the TF2 shorts are kind of macabre black comedies to some extent because they're about this sort of group of people that just murder each other for no reason forever, really. <laughs> And... I'm a psychopath. I'm an assassin. <laughs> well, the difference is one. <laughs> um, and and the the Overwatch shorts are essentially trying to tell the story of a bigger universe or whatever. But like May is Overwatch's like grinning psychopath. Like mm. she freezes people and then fires bolts of ice into their brains <laughs> to kill them. Like she like and I just that that was the thought I was left with. She sort of trudges off to you know to the future at the end of the short like ready to rejoin overwatch and and be the next person she's supposed to be and it's like she's just going to fucking kill <laughs> loads of people with this ice gun she's just invented like she's going to kill winston sometimes <laughs> yep. <laughs> like, yeah, it blows my mind that um uh that they can take the fiction so seriously and 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 not just as a gambit, but it, you know, completely pays off. People are absolutely super invested in this and love these characters and get really invested in them. But the fiction just absolutely doesn't hold up for it just one second of action. Like the game just utterly defies it at every turn. It just, what happens in the game is completely contrary to what the fiction is. Yeah. Even though they try and seed some of the, the fiction into the maps and stuff, but it's, yeah, it's, yeah, but they're all just fighting on random sides and it's just random who's kills who. <laughs> and there's obviously duplicates of people in, in within matches and. Yeah. Everyone um, is being murdered constantly, but resurrected for no reason. In fancy dress. No less. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. That's, the, that's the other thing, like, is I, I continue to be taken aback by, like, how, like, there hasn't really been, like, an original story beat in it yet at all. Like, everything is a cliche from a, like, down to, you know, person wakes up as the last, the only person who has survived a cryo freezing process. Mm. Like, how many times have you seen that little, robot has problem with its batteries and needs you know needs to plug itself in to sacrifice its own battery charge for the good of a different person which is a plot point from wally like yeah you know what i mean like all of these things feel like i, I feel this way with generally like that they have such good production capabilities and they can they have so much ex, like artistic expertise but they have they have never to my knowledge told like an original story like not even close right everything is a pastiche or something else and it's and it's it's sort of so um i I think i find it irritating because it's so um it's almost so unacknowledged it's just sort of like we're doing this this is our amazing story and it's like this is just a a patchwork of like five different comic books and a couple of movies Mm. and you know like there's probably an argument for cliches being easy to handle like these are big obvious handholds for a fan base to identify and connect with yeah yeah and they're kind of shorthand for character types and stuff like that which makes everything extremely understandable very quickly mm. there's probably some value in that and i don't know how much that is yeah and, and to be honest, like i mean I, I appreciate that like a lot of people whose opinions i respect really love the overwatch fandom which i think i think anything can get a good fandom I don't think that's necessarily testament to the strength of the source material, but on a certain point, like when people get attached to something, communities can make anything better. And I think that has happened with Overwatch. Like mm. people have a sense of who those characters are that is a sort of combination of like memes and fan art and 
sort of imaginative investment of people from outside Blizzard, and that stuff has gained a life of its own. But those aren't the films they're making, right? Like, they're mm. not making the film where Genji is a bouncy little asshole constantly demanding healing from everyone in his <laughs> team. And if they did, that that's, I think, because that's the difference, right? I think that if, if, if you switched the licenses over, I think that's the video the TF2 team would have made mm. of Genji, right? Like, it wouldn't be like, meet the martial arts cliche guy. It would be meet the irritating ninja. There would be some twist on it. It would be not something you necessarily expected, like like in all of the TF2 shorts where they're all, they've all been reimagined in some interesting way. Or even, and particularly because those characters from TF2 don't have any personality really, or they didn't until Valve decided to just do stuff with them and give mm. them these interesting ticks or, you know, you know, backstory beats or attitudes or something. Yeah. Um, you said I had opinions about, of what apparently I do. Yeah. Um, the, uh, oh God, I just realized that if people were sick of me having opinions about stuff, the next thing on the news list was, I just written the word mass effect. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah. Andromeda is, uh, not going to receive any further updates or con or single player content. Hmm. But, uh, Patrick Soderlund, who I think is now EA, not DICE, um, I think he was the DICE guy, um, said that, I think Gamescom, that he thought the reception event that Jumbo received was a bit unfair and that, uh, it probably wouldn't be the end of the series, which is interesting. Hmm. Because, yeah, it's mixed messages because as far as anyone can tell, um, Bioware Montreal, who made Andromeda, are basically gone. Like they've been folded into EA Motive, who are making the single player portion of Battlefront 2. There are no further updates planned for the single player part of Andromeda. Mm. So by all accounts, the, you know, the reception that game received has killed the series, at least in that sense. But apparently they're thinking about doing something more. But it's, yeah, interesting. Nonetheless. I wonder how it's doing as a multiplayer game. Because Mass Effect 3 was well supported after, you know, quite long yeah. after the fact. But quite a good multiplayer game. But yeah, I just I wonder if, you know, if there are people playing it because... Andromeda not. is a less good multiplayer game, I think. Mm. Uh, just because the way they've rebalanced it. Um, a lot of the weapons. So the reason I think the reason that Mass Effect worked in multiplayer, whereas something like their Dragon Age Inquisition attempt didn't, was because the main method of interaction you had in Mass Effect was shooting a gun, and the gun play and cover shooting was great, kind of no matter what level you were. Whereas in Inquisition, the minute-to-minute, um, sorry, the second-to-second um, kind of damage output and choices you were making was heavily dependent on your level and the powers that you had slotted, and the level of your enemies. So it did not feel in any way um, kind of kinetic or exciting. Mm. And I think uh, number four suffers a little bit of that. They've had to tone down the amount of weapon damage you do um, to kind of make up for the additional maneuverability and stuff like that. So it's not quite as satisfying to just play it as a shooter with some cool extra powers on top, Yeah, which I think is why three was so good. I think that, yeah, I think that rebalancing combat system worked brilliantly in single player, where you are the only person mm. who matters. So oh, yeah, for you, sure. you can be super powerful. But yeah, I agree with you that I, you know, the multiplayer I played didn't, didn't stick in the way that Mass Effect yeah. 3 did, which is weird because it's but, the thing that's going to get updates. 
it's the in- inexplicable thing of people will buy loot crates for just about anything. Mm. So. Yeah, they will. I bought some Lawbreakers loot crates. <laughs> Why did I do that? Why? <laughs> I mean, it's a great game. It's a great game. I think I maybe in some distant way I wanted to support it, but I was struck by how utterly unrewarding <laughs> that is. I mean, I only spent like a fiver and, you know, full disclosure, because I was reviewing the game, I got my code for free. So mm. I hadn't spent any money on it. And I was mm. like, well, I really like this and I want to support it. So I'll, I'll spend five pounds on on five or six or seven boxes. And it's like decals and one or two gun skins and a, a, a skin, a rare skin for a character I don't play. And it's like, <laughs> what a what a really low value thing i have bought that doesn't feel like true to cliffy b's vision of like that early 2000s era kinetic fast multiplayer shooter what do you mean well that's what he was trying to or that's what the marketing at least says they're going back to yeah well lawbreakers definitely did yeah the hyper speed twitchy shooter the the loot the the game is amazing the loot boxes are bad Mm. well yeah i mean the loot boxes people you know people (laughs) know what they're getting into um it's got some interesting cosmetic ideas, like you can customize your boot print, <laughs> but that only appears if you kick someone to death, and it only appears on their screen, but it fills their entire screen when they die. Oh my God. <laughs> and um, and so that is actually, you know, it's a great idea, because you never see it. You'll never see it, but you know that someone else has it. <laughs> and that's actually quite a nice feeling. I've got, yeah, I've got a couple of good ones that just say like GG on them or something. And that's, yeah. I think I paid... One pound once for some TF2 hats and, and stuff, um, and paint maybe. Um, and, you know, I played that game for like 250 hours or more and, uh, it wasn't free when I got it, but I imagine I must have had a press copy because I, I literally mm. reviewed it. Um, uh, and so yeah, I didn't give that team any money. <laughs> <laughs> despite that being a huge part of my gaming life i'm not in any position to complain about cosmetics and because <laughs> yeah cause dota 2 unfortunately <laughs> uh where i've paid a, Do you... a reasonable rate for all of the two and <laughs> three thousand hours i've been playing the game. uh a dota 2 cosmetics good are they On like the whole for yeah i think they're better than i think they they feel more meaningful within the game than like a lot of things do like first person games suffer from the fact that you don't ever really see your own character. So mm. you got a cool overwatch skin, but you're only going to see it if you get play of the game or something like that. Really? It's very dependent on fashion as well. Mm. So if you like a set, but it's, it's last season's fashion, you can buy like the whole thing for probably under 50 P or something. So yeah, exactly. I wonder if there'll ever be a, a type of game that manages to milk a crazy amount of money out of me. <laughs> so by, just by coincidence, I happen to be resistant to all of the, like, cause I just don't play multiplayer games much at all. Mm. Um, and single player games that have a lot of DLC tend to be things like, um, I know Crusader Kings does, but I don't play that. Um, I probably would like that if I did play it, but, um, you know, railway simulator, you can buy all the trains and stuff like single player stuff with a lot of DLC tends not to uh, be my, my bag. And then like, Bethesda stuff ends up having quite a lot of DLC, but they're so big. The games are so big already. I don't need the DLC mm. really. Like I buy some of them, but I'm not going to try and like brainstorm like, how to get money. Out of them. <laughs> <laughs> what about what about a Hitman game where they were constantly adding new gadgets? A bit mm. like maybe, uh, and each of them costs like a pound. 
Yeah, that's interesting because the thing I used to say was if Blood, if Blood Money released a new ep, a new mission every month, I would buy every single one until the end of time. <laughs> um, and then Hitman did go episodic, and it, I, it it's great, and I like it a lot. Um, it didn't completely. I found I I just had phases with it. I would get into it for a while, and then I would go totally cold on it for like three months or four months, and then I'd get back into it. Um, and it turns out that like for some reason, just dipping into something every month actually doesn't suit me in that way. Um, but yeah, new gadget. I, it, trouble is, then it depends really on your sort of playstyle, whether they fit your playstyle. Like if you have an unsilenced mm. assault rifle, I'm not going to buy it. <laughs> um, and to be honest, like actually even, I don't know, I got, you could probably sell me infinite varieties of silenced pistols forever <laughs> because <laughs> uh, like my favorite weapon in any of the Hitman games is the Silence 22 in Blood Money, which is just bad. <laughs> it's inaccurate. It's, um, doesn't do a lot of damage if you don't get a headshot. Um, and it's probably like the worst silenced weapon there is, but the noise it makes is so perfect. It's just the silenced pistol noise. Uh, <laughs> would that be the cosmetic thing you'd actually go for? It's like, yeah, maybe different just silenced sound. pistol noise. <laughs> yeah. Like this one goes, wow. Silenced pistols is too broad. It's just the sound of the silenced <laughs> pistol. <laughs> I keep the same pistol, but just keep changing the sound. <laughs> Yeah, or like pay for like time limited access to elusive targets, and if you win it, you get a new sound hmm. you get to keep for your elusive target. Oh, sorry, if you're a science pistol, which is a feels, familiar, yeah. I I just generally sort of approve the elusive target system. It feels very strange now that I you know missed a load in the end, um, and it feels strange to me now that there is all this hitman content that exists that I just can't have ever. Mm. <laughs> you know, I, I would pay for that. I would. I'm not sure how much, but you know, there's a pack of all the elusive targets, and you can play them now. Why don't they do that? They should definitely do that. Mm. I think the um, sinking down the kind of the cosmetic hole is easy to do when a game is something that is occupying a lot of your time. Like, yeah. And I think that tends to be multiplied why I don't think this would tend to happen because it tends yeah. to be like, this is the way you are hanging out with your friends every evening. So whether that's an MMO or Dota or Battlegrounds or whatever it is. And therefore it feels natural to spend money in it for some reason, like new sets and events and things when they come along are something you're sharing with other people. So, and you know, Valve have done lots of clever things with Dota to make it feel that way that, you know, participation in, in each new round of things to buy isn't just new stuff to buy. It's, you know, the thing this time where based on how much each person in your team is spent on the compendium, your towers look fancier. <laughs> and it does that at the beginning of every match by having the two teams face off. And it says like, tower level versus and it'll count up one team then count up the other team and you have to watch their tower if, if they spend more money on the compendium than you have you have to watch their tower get fancier and fancier and fancier. It's nothing about the game at all I'd be gently stroked but there's like there is it feels shit to not to be like the poor team <laughs> like, wow <laughs> like, and they've done that and that presumably works so you know and that's where the what was the total prize pool for the international in the end like 23 million, million yeah yeah and that's that's the twenty five percent of the money that they got. Like the other seventy five percent went straight to Valve. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The other seventy five million. Jesus, <laughs> Jesus, Jesus Christ. <sighs> I don't feel so bad about not giving the money for TF two actually. <laughs> if if it like if it was sort of prorated to individual team members, then I would. But it's not. So <laughs> mm. we should talk about what we've been playing rather than what we've been spending money on. Mm. Uh, John. What have you been playing? Uh, I have been playing the Technomancer. The Technomancer? Yes. It's from last year, I think. Uh, but it's fine because nobody's ever heard of it. 
Uh, it's a, an action RPG um, set on Mars in, I don't want to say post-apocalyptic because I use that too much, in a kind of run-down corporate future. <laughs> Bad future. Bad future. Um, where um, a kind of semi-colonized Mars where uh, these domes or arcologies are run by individual corporations and there's... Uh, they're kind of competing for resources and stuff like that. And they've lost contact with Earth due to some previous um, catastrophe. And you play a Technomancer, <laughs> which is kind of like a badly skinned Jedi. Okay. So it's, it's like the warrior wizard thing. And they they have an order and it's very slightly religious. And they kind of interact with uh, the government. Is this one the game that's called like Technomancer the Third Eye or something like that? No, no, that's oh, no. I know what you're thinking of though. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm thinking about something else. Is it <laughs> that might be like Cybermancy or something? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Go on. Sorry, I didn't mean to. Is it, is it a like? So is it um, when you say action RPG? Do you mean like mm. in the Diablo sense, or do you mean in the Deus Ex sense, or the? In the, I can't think of a better um, fit for it than um, the. Uh, terrible long name game made by a, a football player <laughs> oh um kingdoms of ambula yeah uh, <laughs> it's that kind of content. baseball player but yes yeah baseball player sorry yeah misleading it's um you and maybe like a party of like one or two extra allies um facing off um against small groups of enemies hmm. and um i think that's probably the best bit of it is the combat system which is nowhere near as good as batman but occasionally thinks makes me think of batman hmm because um, you have um, a large variety... Well, you have like three different fighting styles, which are better for like groups or single focus or um, like a defensive style. And you have your spells, your technomancy on top of that. And you're facing off against groups, like prioritizing members within those groups. Like you might have the ranged guy who's very dangerous but has weak defense, so you might want to pick him off first uh, and stuff like that. Um it's very much like, if you remember the Gothic and Risen games, mm. it's mm. that kind of tier. Mm. I think you I know can, exactly what you mean. You can charitably call it double A, I think. <laughs> right. But yes. maybe down to like B plus. Or just an A. <laughs> an A, yeah. yeah. Um, except the, uh, this has its site, sets, sites set more on, um, a Mass Effect type game. Mm. It doesn't have quite the range of travel or anything mm. like that in it, but. Is that kind of level of encounters and it's combat real time? Yeah, and yeah, it's quite. There's there's space in it for you to show finesse, which mm. is nice in a system. Mm. Um, but generally, it's a game that doesn't really exceed the sum of its parts. But it's still um, fairly enjoyable. I think um, my main problem with it is that it's a brown vision of the future mm. <laughs> and. There's such an appealing lure when you're making, um, like your Mars game. Say, like, well, everyone's a miner on Mars, so everything's going to be brown and grey, and everyone's going to be in dusty overalls. And that you have to stay away from that. You have to resist the lure. <laughs> you have to get some colour in there somewhere, and mm. they just haven't bothered at all. So, various like slightly woodenly acted dudes in dark armor and leathers and stuff go around beating the hell out of each other in rusty rundown mining centers and stuff um but 
beyond like the five or six hours of boring brown um, stuff where you're stuck inside. <laughs> Always a good start to a sentence. Yeah. <laughs> uh, where you're stuck inside this um, first hub world. Um, for various reasons, you're, you have to leave the safety of this world out into the ravages of untamed Mars, um, where there's all kinds of aliens. And I can't work out if they're actually aliens or they're like rubbish that humans brought with them that have gone and mutated. Because there's definitely <laughs> prawns running around. <laughs> we do throw away prawns. That's true. <laughs> the evidence is there. Um, yeah, I think it's, it was made by a French company and the writing isn't great, but I think that's because a lot of stuff has got lost in translation. Um, there's just some weird stuff popping up every now and then. Like uh, in the first 10 minutes of the game, you see or like your your Jedi mentor explains to you very carefully that life, any life on Mars is precious, especially human life, and you should not be um, killing it, which ties into this mechanical system where um, everyone you fight, you just knock down. At that point, you can loot them, but you can then murder them and suck stuff out of them. <laughs> for You can basically suck money out of their blood. And this <laughs> wow. Kill, they call it serum, and I think everyone's basically ill on some level they never really bothered to explain it but yeah after your your jedi teaches you that life is sacred um within 10 seconds you see a corporate guard um murder a civilian in the streets just for the hell of it (laughs) so it's just you six guys that believe all life is sacred (laughs) so is 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 blood money or is I think serum? <laughs> I know. I was trying to say it in a way that it didn't sound like a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. And because um, it's been translated, you get some weird stuff like, um, yeah, your, your Technomancer group, because uh, of the way that everyone in this um, dome is named, their surname is um, their caste, essentially. So all the traders are called goodsmen. And <laughs> all the thieves... And Rungans are just named rogues. So like, hey, wow. you're, you're John Rogue. <laughs> I like christen hard you, to get away you are fucked at <laughs> yeah. this point. Um, but all the, all the Technomancers are called, like their surname is Mansa. <laughs> Barry Mansa. And they have chosen such bad names for your mentor and the Grand High... Um, Manfred Mansa. Uh, leader, which are respectively Sean and Ian. <laughs> Ian Manser. Ian Manser, a man who has magical powers and commands Ian's. Why did they call the game Technomancer? They could have called it Ian Manser. I don't know. It's weird. Is your name Techno? <laughs> no, it's Zach, which is. Can you enter your name? Zach, yeah. No. Oh, that would be so great. You can get some voice acting. If you could enter your name, 100% of people would write Techno. <laughs> uh, that's, I mean, you know, we should, we should be qualify this with, like, no offense intended to Ian's or Sean's or Zach's. <laughs> Um, just, Unless your surname is Mansur, in which case yeah. <laughs> we are kind of. But like about. Ian Wizard is like a joke <laughs> I would go to. Yeah, yeah. Also, Manor is called Fluid. <laughs> so, uh, so it's it, like Fluid in Serum. The- <laughs> yeah, I guess like to cast spell, you have to spend fluid mm. and your fluid recharge rate is something mm. you might want to pay attention to. Do you just need to like drink a lot of Lucozade? <laughs> Um, has uh, like mm. blood being money has that been done <laughs> that seems like a really good idea <laughs> yeah maybe is it a good idea tom 
Do you mean in games or practically? <laughs> I mean, just as a, a you know, as a metaphor. Oh, <laughs> just uh, you know, isn't it, is if it, you want to do like some sci-fi that that paints a bleak picture and also reflects our society, handed metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> it's out there, like <laughs> you won't miss it. Hmm. Yeah. Good. I mean, that, yeah. I mean, that's a perfectly. You know, you can go for the capitalist vampire thing. You can go lots of different ways. <laughs> you just probably shouldn't. See. Yeah. I think I've been quite down on it. Including the, you have to get past six hours of boring, <laughs> rusty um, pits before things get interesting. But I'm probably going to go back and finish it. It it feels like it might expand in a good way mm. and be fairly rewarding, uh, at least until XCOM comes out. And the combat's good. Yeah, yeah. Like I've, uh, I think there's enough um, space in like a skill system and um, your techniques and stuff for you to. Like, not so much build interestingly, but build rewardingly. So hmm. the powers you're picking feel like they're actually changing the combat. So my rogue, or my guy is specialized in the rogue system, um, which means he's all about um, dodging at the perfect moment and interrupting uh, with his pistol that he's got and getting behind people to deal extra damage in a kind of Dark Souls but nowhere near as good hmm. kind of way. I do find pistols to be interrupting. Yeah. <laughs> Anytime anyone shoots me, I'm always like, just totally losing my track of thought and have to start again with whatever task I'm working on. That's literally how Bloodborne works. Yeah. Like, that's all guns do is momentarily. Oh, come on, people. I was working on that. Yeah. <laughs> just like lose your train of thought because someone shot a pistol at your face. <laughs> so is that, is, is it the combat system that you would say is the basis of your good feeling towards it or is it? Yeah, more- I think. Yeah, if the combat was bad, then I'd had absolutely no patience for it whatsoever because I don't particularly like any of the characters <laughs> and I've stopped reading the majority of the quest dialogue. <laughs> um, maybe I won't go back to it. <laughs> <laughs> you yourself out of it. I, I might be totally wrong. I feel like I saw screenshots of this and I think I thought it was pretty. Is it pretty? In places. Other than being brown, I mean. <laughs> like they, there's some good environments where you look over like wastelands of mars and um like the sun setting and stuff like that but um in general the art direction itself is fairly uninspired mm. like i said it's it's the first thing you go to when you think mining corporation on mars mm. like sort of red faction total recall yeah yeah like the first red faction specifically right which was mm. bad i think red faction gorilla got a bit better with its kind of cool sci-fi cars and yeah that was great um yeah maybe if it's in a sale you should have a look at it and you're really uh you really want something to like sink your teeth into because i get the feeling it's going to be long Mm. there's certainly a lot to do in there feels like a little bit of a tom senior game (laughs) it's the perfect i can't remember what his number is is it six six or seven yeah Yeah. it's definitely a six out of (laughs) ten He, yeah, I, I, don't, I think he may, might have started to resent that being his thing. <laughs> um, but too late. What have you been up to, Tom? Um, I played a bunch of things, two of which I've already played. Um, so I'll talk briefly about those and then one new thing. Um, uh, and perhaps after I've talked about one of them, we could move to you and then come back to me. That sounds like a structure of a podcast. <laughs> so, I'm not, so I'm not talking too much. Um, so I uh, just wanted to quickly say that I, like last week I talked about No Man's Sky and I was pretty down on it and I just started a creative mode 
run at that point and mm. i didn't have a lot to say about that um i didn't know how it was going to work out and now i've carried on with that and i think that is the way that no man's sky works for me is creative mm. mode uh everything is free you can't be hurt um you like your your ship will still run out of fuel but then you just click on the fuel thing and it just recharges it <laughs> it's it's got weird hangovers from limited resources but your resources aren't actually limited um and so it just becomes all about just going to cool places and looking at them and i forgot how much fun it was to name these things just to come up with names for the weird dorky creatures you find and the strange trees and then um my rule is i go to a planet and then i spend enough time on it that i could name it <laughs> and if i can't think of a name it means i haven't spent enough time on the planet i need to drive around some more and um having vehicles is really cool as well like that's mm. something that um a lot of the new features they added i think were things that i was never really going to interact with when resources are limited but in creative mode if i can just any time just say i want a fucking hover car right here please and i can have it for free uh i'll do it and that makes exploring way better and then uh base building i'm really enjoying as well like it, it, that's um a really nice system for it i think it's nicer to use than like fallout 4s which was you know fallout 4s headline feature um and I'd, i'm not building bases to any purpose i'm just each planet I, I go to it i'll i spend enough time to name it if i like it i'll also build a base there and you can put down a sensor to find out where the nearest base location is you can only build them at certain spots um and then you go there and like I'm not trying to do anything with the base. I'm not putting any functional elements in it. There are all kinds of things about farming modules and uh, other things, but it's all a bit irrelevant to me. Um, so I just try and make like a pretty layout with curved glass corridors and stuff mm. um, and try and make each one different to the last. Uh, I've just discovered that you can only have three. So when I my fourth one, it deleted my <laughs> first one. Uh, but that's all right because I was never really going to go back to them. Um, and so it's kind of just like leaving my mark and that sort of feels like closure somehow, you know, in the absence of any kind of game, <laughs> there is a game in No Man's Sky and I played that and I didn't like it. And so now I'm playing the non-game version and in the absence of any actual game, um, I'm just sort of leaving my mark on each planet and just, uh, you know, it feels like a sort of a decent response to the input of No Man's Sky and you know, the input is these planets and mm. the planet generator has always been pretty good and now it's better than it, it used to be and, um, some planets are a bit tough and then some are just really cool. The what, latest one I found is just like, I've been to some really crazy, like bright pink and green ones that had crazy cliffs and weird features. And the latest one I'm on is just like desert, just like earth desert with earth cacti and earth shrubs and, uh, earth sand. And it just looks very traditional, but it just looks really good. Just is really that really what nice. you named everything? This um, is an earth cactus. Do you know what? I'm not sure I've named that one yet. <laughs> I, I've left that one now and I should name it, but the, uh, the current one I want is like wild again. Um, and yeah, I should go back and name the boring earth one. <laughs> boring, but pretty earth one. Uh, and yeah, so that's working out for me now. Mm, um, I'm not going to like sink a huge number of hours into it, I think, but, um, it's, that's, that is of the ways available to me to play that game. That is the one that clicked for me. Mm. Um, and also I play shadow tactics again. Um, and I've, I think I've got access to, I think I've now played as all the characters. I think there are four. Mm. I might be wrong about this. Um, and the new one I've just unlocked is the disguise one. And Shadow Tactics is really good at taking stealth, uh, stealth mechanics that have been done a million times and just sort of doing them in a really definitive and clean and, and clear way. And so, um, the other ones have all been about distraction and the samurai is kind of the combat guy. Um, and uh, there's a trap character and the new one i've just unlocked is the disguise character who um 
the her disguises are basically perfect. Only samurai can see through them, and mm. samurai are very rare at this point, at least. Um, but she actually needs to find a disguise, and it has to be a woman. <laughs> and there aren't that many women in the levels. Um, all the levels of Shadow Tactics are specifically designed for the characters they give you, so it's just like, you have the disguise person and the samurai. Here is the level. There's the disguises. Objective number one, get your disguise person to one of the disguises. You've got a choice of which one you want to go for. Um, and it's, it's really nice to play a version of that, like, you know, Hitman struggled for like four games trying to get disguises right. They just went back and forth about how detectable they should be, what, what, when they can they be seen through, how do we show that to the player? Uh, cause it's, it's too powerful if it's perfect, right? Mm. Um, and in this, they are basically perfect except for against Samurai. Um, but getting to them is very difficult. Once you're in disguise, um, obviously like killing someone would break the disguise um and doing sort of really athletic things like grappling hooking or climbing or swimming breaks the disguise and uh you can do that but then to put the disguise back on that's a sort of high profile action you have to sort of stand up to do it so if you're in a stealth bush um (laughs) uh you have to stand up out of the stealth bush to change clothes and people will see you like the vision cones in in um shadow tactics are two-tiered so the the part where they can see you clearly is very short but the part where they can see you at all is very long if you're in low profile mode they can't see you in the the long vision cone but if you're changing clothes they see that and so it becomes very if you come out of disguise it becomes very difficult to get back in disguise unless you've totally secured the area or you've got a really good safe spot um and this mission is basically like samurai is the least stealthy character and then you've got the disguise character is basically the best stealthy character once she's actually once you actually get um uh i guess it's a kimono <laughs> um once you get one she can just go not only can she walk anywhere and just be completely um immune to people's detection but she can even distract them and that's her thing she can just walk around anyone and talk to them and she is infinitely interesting <laughs> she can talk for an unlimited amount of time and every single person will be interested in what she's saying um uh you know whoever she talks to will be interested in what she's saying uh and that includes patrols and patrols if like more than one person moves together they effectively count as one unit so if she distracts one of them she distracts both of them um and so that level has a really good flow to it where you are initially trying to sneak around with her she's quite an agile character um but has no attack stuff um other than just a default stealth takedown uh so getting her to the disguise is a little bit tricky and just mostly involves uh, avoiding people then once she's got the disguise, she just has free reign of this huge compound and just go absolutely anywhere. She can has really good power to manipulate guard patrols and distract people and, and all that stuff. But now you've got to get your least stealthy character through it all because he's got to get to the samurai. He's the only one who can take out a samurai. Samurais can see through disguises, so she can't do anything about the samurai. Um, and so the, the whole objective of the level is get the samurai to the samurai. <laughs> <laughs> he's a better samurai, so he can beat them. Um, and... Yeah, that's that's just a really cool puzzle, um, and it really worked for me. I'm starting to realize it's um, it's very much a puzzle game. It's it's very designed. There are multiple approaches to each level, and there are ways to do it in clever and fancy ways. But they have designed these levels to be to work for these two characters that they've given you. Mm. I don't know if you ever get more than two characters at once. Um, perhaps you do, but um, yeah, they are kind of puzzles. Is uh, the um user interface keeping up with what you want to execute it is except for the shadow mode or whatever it's called i think it's called shadow mode yeah where you plan things it's it's strangely under featured it feels intentionally sort of 
not that good. <laughs> uh, you can plan one action with each character in it, but while you're planning, time is still flowing, so you have to have both the characters completely safe while you're planning. And you can't do things like run here and then do this. It has to be just run here or mm. do this from where you currently are. Uh, you can sort of say like, you can, you can, if you like throwing a smoke bomb or something, you can like say throw a smoke bomb at this guy and in shadow mode you walk out there and into range and do it. Uh, but that gets stored as smoke bomb this guy and it doesn't store the information about where they should move to do that. And so wherever they are, they will try and move to do it, but you don't have a lot of precision over it. And, um, you know, the, the most common thing you would want to do is have both your characters run out, stab someone, and then you want to hide the bodies really quickly, right? And that is something your characters could do easily. Both of them, you can plan the stab, but you can't plan the body dragging. And because it doesn't pause time when you're planning, after you've stabbed them, you can't plan it then. You've got to do everything in real time. So you have to just use one character, drag the body all the way back to the bush, while the other character just stands there next to a, <laughs> a dead body out in the open, and then switch to that character and drag them back, which feels like... To me, the, the point of having a planning system is that you can close that gap between what the player is capable of doing and what the people will be capable of doing. Mm. But that's mm. like a glaring omission in there. And that, it feels intentional. Like they could easily have it pause. You know, the game is, it's not a technical limitation or anything. They've decided that they don't want you to be able to do that for some reason. And, uh, it's not like a huge problem because, like I say, the levels are so, they're designed to work with the abilities you have. And so, um, you're never in a situation where it's like, oh, the solution to this would be to do this. And but I can't. Hmm. it's a cool game it is a cool game what have you been playing Chris? so I've played a couple of hours in terms of new stuff I've played a couple of hours of West of Loathing hmm. um, which uh, is we've mentioned before is by our friend Zach who was on the pod last year yep yes and his team obviously but yep. apparently him and I actually never like I played probably like a couple of hours of Kingdom of Loathing back in the day, but didn't dig into it, really. He says 80% of the writing is Riff, right. who, is, um, who I have not met, but he's on that podcast, uh, Video Games Hot Dog, with um, Zach and Kevin and Riff from Asymmetric, and mm. Jim, who's the Frog Fractions guy. Um, so, yeah. But yeah, so, um, and I really like it, um, which is good, obviously, because it'd be really Where awkward. do you get in the game? Um, so I've spent, I'm now in the West, <laughs> which is a threshold that you cross. Yep. Um, and I, so I'm just, I've done like half a dozen to a dozen locations. You, you're constantly unlocking new places to clop away to on your horse. Um, so it is a, it's an adventure game. Um, it's somewhere between a point and click and a JRPG. You know, it's, must be multiple games like this. It's got a sort of point and click, walk around, talk to people, do things system, a relatively simple level, uh, mixed with JRPG style combat. Um, all stick figures and stuff, um, similar to Kingdom of Loathing. But, um, the thing that the reason you should play it, and I think you should play it, is the density of gags <laughs> is very high in a good way. Um, it's, it's one of the things where I don't think necessarily one of the reasons I probably want to talk about it loads is because it's not worth like it, talking about why it's funny. It risks that kind of like you had to be there style, like yeah. explaining the joke after it's been made. But but the way it's funny is is the thing to to explain, which is that like good pen, like good point and click adventure games of old, it 
it finds ways of putting humor into everything, which is sort of continually surprising and entertaining and quite disarming. Like there's a lot of, um, you know, this is from the school of game design where everything is made by hand. Obviously everything is hand drawn badly. Everything has been badly hand drawn <laughs> to the extent that that means that there are, you know, you can get a joke into everything, every kind of individual little, you know, item and, um, enemy and and ability and things can have have something going on um like very early in the game very early in the game you you know you wake up in your bedroom as you always do in rpgs and you, you there's a bookshelf and you can keep and um it appears to they use random generation quite a bit for jokes sometimes so you can keep looking at a gravestone and it'll keep telling you a different randomly generating person uh or in the very beginning of the game it'll keep i think randomly generating books until you unless you just keep going and eventually it will give you a book um which is called um um uh walking badly and the joke is you know when you were a little kid when you read it you get the walking badly skill permanently and um when you know he says you know the the massive that skill is something like when you're a little kid you wanted to walk so badly and now you now you have <laughs> <laughs> um and um and that means that whenever you move in the game your walking animation is com- completely fucked like there's loads of them they've made it you can uncheck it in the options menu if you don't want to walk badly anymore but it means that now whenever my character walk anywhere on the screen um sometimes he scoots around on his bum sometimes he slides sometimes he walks around on his hands sometimes he drags himself along on his face and it just does this and it's just 100 percent part of the game now like it's just like i'm not switching it off because it's just everywhere I go. and it's just it's just that basically like at, at scale and, and um uh yeah and there's um it's it's very it's there is a there is a way of finding a difficulty level um modifier that makes it hard and the way it presents you're making the game harder for yourself if you do this is is very funny like everything else um i did find uh i was desperate for this to be a reference but it's not i did find that there's a thing you can get i and i thought initially this was a reference there's a thing you can get um if you uh you find some crates and if you can find a crowbar <laughs> you can use the crate the crowbar <laughs> and the crates to get the thing and i was like oh boy Zach was on the podcast. This must be referenced. And I was, no, that's what the crowbars are for. You fucking idiot. <laughs> like, that's just how those two things work. That's, that's yes. That's, that's why the thing happens in the game that was to name this, that. Um, but, um, uh, it's, it, that's, that's pretty close to where you can find the difficulty modifier, but I'm playing it at like, um, coasting mode, hmm. um, basically. And it, it rewards, you know, it, it doesn't really, get hard necessarily although i think i found a massive exploit so i don't know if that was some purpose or not um i have died in it yeah i've um, died actually there are there are like it's not just breezy jrpg thing but mostly jokes there are some interesting ideas so one of them is um if you die you just get reset to just outside the fight and you're fine you come back and you try again however when you die you become angry and when you have the angry buff several of your stats go up but if you die again or if you lose another fight, you become so angry you go to sleep <laughs> and you wake up in the inn and that is functionally its fail state because you go back to the most recent inn and then you have to go back out into the world again. Uh, it's just inconvenient, really. Like, death doesn't really ever set you back. However, in the inn, there is a mirror and if you go to the mirror and insult yourself, you can become angry on purpose, <laughs> which gives you that buff from the, the offset but means that you now can't afford hmm. to fail without getting reset back, which is just a nice little 
idea right like it's a nice death mechanic but it also is a nice kind of difficulty modifier i tend not to use it after the first time experimenting with it but can you insult yourself in the mirror so much that you fall asleep and wake no, up back you at the because it, it'll tell you like if i do this again i'm gonna pass out <laughs> from how angry i am at myself um i've had that feeling um there's loads like and there's a lot of um it rewards you more for thoroughness so if someone um you know exploring everything talking to everybody if someone says something and it sounds like it relates to an actual environment that you've seen or whatever going and checking out that thing because it is always a thing and it'll always unlock something else buying all of the tools you can get from the shop so that you can take advantage of certain interactions when they appear um it's got a nice system because it doesn't really have a quest system so much as people say things and those interactions are now possible somewhere but you do you get a the end of the intro gives you your horse and your companion and as far as i can tell those are permanent decisions that you you'd have to play the game again to get the other mm. horse or the other companions mm. which companion do you go for i went for uh the the doctor yeah, the alcoholic <laughs> the alcoholic doctor who's fucking so this is the basis of how i think i've broken the game but um uh, so I've, I've got the alcoholic doctor and the dark horse because uh, you can pick either the dark horse, the pale horse, or the crazy horse, <laughs> or the normal horse. <laughs> um, I went to the dark horse, who gives you some stealth bonuses and is extremely shy. Um, and then, oh, I went for like, I thought I had the stealth horse, but I think my horse is like ghostly, the pale horse. Yeah. yeah. Um. Uh, yeah. Um. I yeah I called it biscuits. I couldn't get the dark horse because I exchanged my pin for dynamite. <laughs> I did that. And I think it, they might have patched it since I played it. Oh. That just broke it for me. I just couldn't ever get the Dark Horse. Oh. I, I emailed them about it. And <laughs> okay. No, I, uh, yeah. Um, so yeah, the, um, one of the reasons that I think I might have broken it, but I don't mind because it's not the kind of game that you would care about having broken is, um, I found a place, uh, quite early on where I can just summon a fight against three skeletons. Um, it's it's in an environment called the Dave Yard, where everyone who's <laughs> died there is called Dave. Um, and um, in within the mausoleum in the Dave Yard, you can have a fight with... You can basically pick a fight with one of them. It's even called in the game, because I don't think anyone knows what it's actually called. Those, like, crypt things. Is it an ossuary where you have, like, the drawers full of skeletons? In, like, an old-timey crypt? We've talked about ossuaries before. We have. Pip I, I didn't know anything about it. Pip would know. You guys told me it was a place um, where you it, keep bones. I'm going to say it's an ossuary. I'm probably wrong. <laughs> um, but you can pick to either, like, Or an fight. ossuary. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone's there. It's called Oz. <laughs> yeah. um, you can, so you can either fight one skeleton or you can fight three. And initially, the fighting three skeletons fight was hard, but it gives you loads of XP for doing it and items that you can sell. And you can do that forever. And Alice, the doctor, the alcoholic doctor, is now leveled up so much that she has an ability. She hates the undead. That's her thing. And she has an ability called Bonesaw now, which just instantly kills a skeleton. <laughs> it only works on skeletons. Only only skeletons ever. She can't even attack people with the saw. But if there is a skeleton, she will kill it instantly from full health. So I can always win that fight easily. And I'm a I'm a um, snake oiler. Uh, me too. <laughs> so, um, which means that I can I have a, a briefcase full of snakes that I can either. Well, at first you have like had two abilities. One is I'm also a gunslinger. But um, you can whip someone with a snake, which poisons them. Um, or you can just deploy a snake. And I've invested all my XP in upgrading. It starts with a baby snake. And I've got it up to, like, poisonous teen snake. <laughs> um, but the poisonous teen snake is massively overleveled, I think, for the sort of things I'm fighting now. So the first start of any given fight, and I've now got a thing that makes me faster. So I usually have initiative. So start of any given fight, deploy the teen snake. And then if it's skeletons, then 
Alice can kill one immediately and I can, um, you know, do my thing. So combat has stopped being hard, really, because... So my, my briefcase of snakes, I can withdraw a healing, mm. uh, some healing venom or some healing stuff or some uh, venom to poison a weapon. And it has charges for that. Do you know when they replenish or why? I don't why? know. I don't, I, no, I've never even really touched they that. They seem quite plentiful. I've got like, and like the, if you have the healing thing you've extracted from your briefcase, then during a fight, it gets way easier. Um, uh, the time I died was I, I went to, I did like a bounty and went to find some kind of gang. And when I fought them, they got the first turn. And in that first turn, they killed my main character and then the fight was over. <laughs> so I literally had no chance to do anything at all. And then it got angry and went back and it still felt like I was underleveled for it. But because I was both angry and I had a bunch of healing stuff from my briefcase, um, like they would nearly kill me every single time they attacked, but then I would fully heal myself and then also whittle them down very, very slowly. Yeah. And we eventually won that way. But I felt like, I still feel like I've done the wrong thing. I feel like I should have done something before this because I'm, I'm clearly underleveled for it. Yeah. It's, it's a weird one. Like, if you fight a party that has like a, a wizard in it or a bean slinger, as it's called, then um, they will always seem to target player character rather than your allies. Because I tend to rely on like off tanking with the teen snake. And- <laughs> <laughs> off tanking with the teen snake. I think we have a podcast. Um, and um, and if that can one shot me, then that's when I lose fights. Because um, again, I've got super leveled up doctor, so she can tend to heal anything I can take in a turn so as long as i can if you know and normally it's not like all wizards so it's only like one character attacking me directly and everyone else is attacking teen snake so um so yeah normally it's, it's you know I, I can sort of i can get through everything i mean only the first couple of hours of the game though so maybe it'll, maybe it'll change there's like it's one of those things where lots of the good sort of gags and sort of things come from things you feel like you just go for by accident like i can speak goblin now which changed one encounter completely because I can understand all their writing and, um, uh, you know, talk to them and trick them and stuff. And that is reliably funny as well. It's just, mm. uh, you know, well-written and funny video game, which is nice. Um, trying to think, I don't think, yeah, there's not, I wouldn't say much else about it because without, you can't really don't spoil stuff or dig too deep into, you know mechanics and things because it's not beyond the fact that the mechanics are funny it, you wouldn't play it because you wanted to play the greatest rpg combat system ever devised yeah. you play it because you want to see what happens when you um interact with things in a in a particular way or whatever um for some reason i call my main character christmas dickit i don't know why <laughs> like i didn't randomly generate that i just wrote that like off the top of my head i was like what's the, what's, the, what's what's a stupid cowboy called like this um, and, but right at the beginning, there's quite a lot of references to Crimbo. And I didn't think Americans said Crimbo. So that's my question. That's my only question arising <laughs> from West of Loathing is, um, because I always think of Crimbo as like a Liverpudlian thing. That to sounds say. very Australian to me. Yeah. Like, <laughs> um, my, my mum and dad would call it Crimbo. And so I want to know why that is a thing. Anyone, anyone, including people who wrote this game, <laughs> let me know. Cause that, that threw me, but, um, but no, uh, thoroughly recommend it. And it's only a couple of quid, I think. So, yeah. And Barrel Cancer seems to be doing quite well as well, which is nice to yeah. see. It's always nice when something is a success. So, yeah. What have you been playing that's new, Tom? I have played, drum roll please, Flotilla 2. <laughs> There's a Flotilla 2. That was two. a drum roll. That was a sort of... <laughs> like... Someone falling off a cliff. <laughs> 
Um, uh, yeah, Ben and Jung has, has made a new Flotilla game, and it's VR. Are you announcing a game on this podcast? No. Uh, <laughs> well, so I think he's announcing it today. Or what's today? Is it Thursday? Thursday. I think he was supposed to announce it yesterday. But anyway, I did check with him. Uh, can I talk about this on a podcast that comes out on Friday? And he said yes. <laughs> and uh, so Flotilla was a turn-based um, uh, tactical spaceship combat game uh, by Brendan Chung, who did 30 Folks Loving and Quadrilateral Cowboy. Um, and Flotilla 2 is that, but in VR. And it's uh, sort of room-scale VR. I don't know what his plans are in terms of, like, whether he'll support seated VR as well, because he can, uh, as long as you have, like, motion controls. Because the point of it is that you can just sort of reach out and pick up your ships and put them where you want with your hand. <laughs> um, and that's, you know, planning your turn. You're kind of, um, uh, when you pick them up, they get attached to your controller, which is like a box in the, in the, uh, in the game. And as you move that box around, the ship will follow it. And, uh, when you move it out of its movement range, it will kind of just stop at the limit of its movement range. And obviously your, some of your ships are faster than others. So you can see how far they're going to move that turn. Uh, and Flotilla is all about positioning. It has a hard and fast rule that ships take damage from the back and the underside, but nowhere else. So no matter how many missiles hit the front of your ship, they'll never do any damage. Uh, it's only if a ship can get beneath you or behind you. Um, and uh, you obviously want to be uh, facing the enemy so you can shoot at them. Um, and so it's all about trying to sort of you're both trying to get underneath each other or behind each other. And, uh, you have like four or five units in this scenario I played. Um, and so obviously you could do sort of like flanking things in theory. <laughs> I have not done that. What I've done is lose horribly many times. Um, it's, uh, you don't decide when your units fire, which is, uh, I believe that's true of the original flotilla as well. It's been ages since I played it. Um, and so it's hard to kind of know exactly what's going to happen on your turn, even with your own units, even if the enemy doesn't do anything surprising. Um, and it's just like a game where it's tricky to know how to go about doing what you know you must do. You know, you must get behind these enemies, but how are you going to do that exactly? I guess just go as low as you can, but then aren't they trying to do that as well? Are we just both going to go down forever? <laughs> um, none of us are going to knowingly turn our back on the enemy. Um, but obviously you don't know what the enemy's going to do, and so on your turn you can see it play out differently. Uh, VR and, like, properly tracked motion controls, like, you know, just having controllers that map perfectly to your hands, um, is the perfect interface for both positioning things in 3D space and also seeing things in 3D space, you know, just being able to look around it and um, uh, see where everything is and just get a, a full 3D picture of what's happening. Uh, you know, doing that on a flat screen is just way harder and controlling it with non-3d controls is way harder this is obviously the natural interface for it um but i mean i never really played flotilla one that much i played a bit and then i had basically the same problem i'm having now which is i don't really know how to get underneath someone or behind someone <laughs> if they don't want me to like in the one match i played they just did they just rolled over and their bellies were exposed and i got to shoot at some of them but i didn't know why they did that and i didn't know how to make that happen um again and so but it I don't think that's a, I don't think that means that the game is, you know, the strategy of the game doesn't make sense. I think it's just that I haven't figured out how you play this game. There's obviously a knack to it. And it's just, it's a very simple rule, but it's, I think 
pretty fundamentally different to almost any other game I've ever played. Like, you never get a thing where, like, this unit is invincible to all attacks from the front and mm. the top. And that's all your units. <laughs> all the units are invincible from 50% of the ways you can shoot them. Um, do and the, so it's just hard to get your head around as to how to play it. Do the environments have environments are there like asteroid fields and stuff for you to yeah there are asteroids and then there are giant cubes i'm not sure if those are placeholder or if (laughs) they'll just be giant cubes uh and when missiles hit those they actually nudge them through space so there's sort of a a, an element to um uh you know pushing those where you want them or or getting them out of your way and stuff but again you don't control when your units fire so you couldn't really as far as i know you don't think you can target them specifically you do have a bunch of special options for ships so i have one of them that, that has um uh like a ramming mode and the way you control that is um when you select the ship the ramming option will just be floating in space somewhere and you take your boxy controller thing and you just move it over there until that ramming box latches onto the front of your controller and now you're in ramming mode and now wherever you go that's going to be that's going to tell that ship to go at ramming speed and Mm. um do damage by colliding um the box is is very just looks like something straight out of quadrilateral cowboy it just has that that brendan chung look to technology where it's all just um uh retro but also meticulously detailed and um uh and that's you know an analog to your vive controller um and then one of them has one of them you can tell when to fire but you do it instead of moving so it's like one turn you move it and then the next turn you decide okay Mm. artillery barrage in this direction please and that's the only one I ever got a kill with because I'm like, okay, I know where this one's going to fire. Um, and then the other ones have, uh, I couldn't tell you all of their abilities, but they usually have something like um, a sort of evasive mode where they can turn rapidly but can't move very far. And then another mode where they can move very far but they can't turn very rapidly. Uh, or you can do neither of those and just have the sort of balanced movement. Uh, and obviously when you when you're the, only, the way you plan your move is just literally to move the ship where you want it to be and then press the trigger to sort of confirm. And that is going to be both a position and a facing. Mm. Um, and I think they just sort of like lurp between their current position and facing to the one that you send them to. Or maybe they try and match that angle as fast as they can and then also match that distance as, as fast as they can, in which case they would probably end up facing the right way before they get there. Um rather than like smoothly turning over the course of their journey that's the kind of thing i don't know i haven't i've only played like two matches of it and the first one i got destroyed on turn two <laughs> the next one I, I killed one of their ships and then i got destroyed on turn four <laughs> um so it's still pretty brutal but that this was not like a you know a final build of well certainly not a final build um not even a build that's sort of uh designed for the, the end user um just a sort of tech test of how this all could work um so yeah it'll be cool Man, VR is a pain in the ass. <laughs> just as an aside, no criticism of this game. Just uh, I haven't used my Vive in about six months, and um, it's all set up. I didn't change anything. It's all more or less plugged in, except in the mains, because the lighthouses don't have an off switch. So if you plug them into the mains, they are constantly on, and they're constantly whirring, which makes a slight noise. Um, so I'd leave them unplugged. And I forgot that, A, wearing a headset and uh where has it is incredibly hot um having your it window open hot <laughs> <laughs> having your windows open when you're wearing a headset means having you know your blinds open as well so then everyone can see you blundering around your room like an idiot <laughs> um and 
you need headphones for it and the headphones i wanted to use or the headphones i had handy were sort of uh over the ear ones which you know sort of clash with the five zone strap and it's hard to know whether to put those on you gotta put those on afterwards really but then you're already in the vibe and then you can't see what you're doing um uh the headset lost its connection at some point and i had to unplug it and replug it in which sounds simple except that there are literally eight plugs <laughs> involved in that because it goes to a, an intermediary unit between you and your pc and there are three different oh, types of plug for that and then there's also um uh, other ones for like power and stuff um and i forgot that it can't deal with mirrors i have a mirror in my room so i had to remember like after it started to fail i had to go out and realize oh that's because the beams are reflecting off the mirror and i need to go and get a sheet and hang it over my mirror <laughs> try and get that to hang out and yeah fucking hell vr is going to be for once through experiences i think anything that wants me to play it habitually it's just <clears> not going to happen because i just can't go through that rigmarole every time what are do you know what brendan's plans for the game are no i don't really uh he's um <laughs> if we didn't just announce it he has announced it <laughs> at, um uh uh glitch city the co-working space that he's a part of uh doing a sort of like fundraising thing and i think they're all gonna sort of deliver some news or show some kind of build um and so if he has already done that or if he's going to do that then uh, i imagine there he has said what he's what he's going to do with it mm. cool should we do questions sure let's do some questions yeah some questions, questions. <laughs> thanks john your enthusiasm in this and in all things very much appreciated <laughs> Someone called me a calming influence on the pod, and I don't know if I like that. <laughs> you're I might a... go for an in, inciting influence next time. <laughs> inciting? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know. You, you, you're a very calm dude. I'm not sure if that's what a podcast needs, though. I, d I don't know. I mean, Maybe fisticuffs. It's, you know, I don't know how well fisticuffs translate in an audio <laughs> format. We could try, but I don't know. I think uh, everyone else in this room would win, so I'm not super keen. <laughs> Um, Pip's not here though because she just destroy everybody <laughs> with her ice gun and <laughs> <laughs> um, Jeff B writes just lobbing in a message here from the colonies in Halifax, Nova Scotia that not only is peanut butter and a jam sandwich rather popular as a source of nutrients here but my father who grew up in England has been fond of them since his time there Thanks, Jeff. Appreciate that. There's going to be more of this. I'm going to weigh in on two subjects. Of yeah. <laughs> Peanut butter and jam sandwiches and wood lice. Just what in case you've momentarily forgotten what this podcast is about. So have we. Uh, Jeff's question is, I've been enjoying my time playing Overwatch's cool Healy mum, Anna. Despite her simple skills, I'm in awe of her seemingly limitless skill ceiling with the kind of complex decisions you have to make with her every second. What games slash characters have the most skill ceiling-y skill ceiling? Any good examples of a game having a skill flaw? Love, Jeff B. There is, like, at my level of TF2, uh, the spy was the uh, the one where it made the biggest difference if someone was good or bad. You know, if they're, um, uh, if they were bad, they were just completely useless. And if they were good, they would, A, you know, do the actual thing that they do, like stab people and, and uh, potentially sap sentries and stuff. But also, even when they weren't doing that, they just seeded such paranoia in the enemy team that they would have to waste so much time checking that spy wasn't there um, that, you know, even while they're on respawn timer, they would be causing the enemy team havoc, which is great. Um, it's probably not true at the professional level. I, I, I haven't checked in on, like, pro TF2 in years, um, but I wouldn't be surprised if, like, 
spy is just sort of not viable because everyone's too wise to any kind of deception. Hmm. I think thinking of TF2, the medic uh, is the best example of skill flaw. Mm. That's what mm. you play when you can't aim properly and still make a valuable contribution to your lineup. Yeah, I think um, uh, stressing that this does not imply the absence of a, of a high skill ceiling. Um, Lucio in Overwatch is designed to be a, a, mm. a hero where there's loads you can do with him like offensively and, and aggressively and um, can be dramatically more effective than his base level of effectiveness but his base level of effectiveness is just pretty good like if he's just hanging around people he's healing them all the time you don't even have to point at them <laughs> um and uh that's just automatically useful to your team so you can't be a hundred percent useless if you're mm. just near your team i think overwatch generally is full of examples of like yeah, you know, i think it does have a skill ceiling but i also think it has quite a high skill floor um because there are plenty of characters you can play if you're you know, if you don't play a healer, but you're no good at aiming, Reinhardt is right there for you. A man who literally never, like, you can aim your fire blast thing, but that's once every five seconds and it goes in a straight line, hits everything in a straight line. So, mm. um, you know, and also, you know, Reinhardt creates a front line around him that other characters can read very easily. So where the fight is taking place is very obvious as well. Yeah, I can do an item which has the low skill floor, which was the grenade launcher or noob tube from Modern Warfare. <laughs> mm. Uh, a Modern Warfare 2 multiplayer, um, which was kind of reliably one kill, and then you would almost certainly die because <laughs> the reload would be so long in between it. And you could do, you could perform much better if you were higher skilled if you ditched that for some other attachment or weapon or something like that. But that's what you got if you wanted, if you were just desperately trying to achieve a 1 1 KD ratio. Mm. I think um, COD generally is a good example of a game with quite a high skill floor because it's so lethal. Um, and I was talking to Cliff Blazinski about this last week and uh, for an inter- during an interview, and he described COD maps as porous, which is a description I really like. Um, you know, they're full of little holes and lots of windy routes, and they're sort of complex in a way that's quite difficult to master any given angle. Obviously, the very best players probably can. But for 99% of people who play them, you're going to get flanked constantly. Like, there are going to be people coming from behind you, slightly above you, from the left to the right, hiding behind boxes, whatever. But the flip side of that means you're always doing that to someone else, basically. So everyone is always ambushing somebody else. So everyone's always getting the drip feed of kills and feedback because mm. you get the drop on. So- There's no, um, again, to borrow words from, from, uh, Clifford, Cliffy B, Blazinski. Um, there's no dance to that game at all. You know, it's not like um, a shooter I like, like Lawbreakers, or, which is why I was talking to him, or, or Quake or anything really, where the first shot is the beginning of the duel between two players. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's good to get the drop on them because that means that you can do a chunk of damage, but there is then a dance between two players. And if you get ambushed, you can turn it around. In COD, that's probably not going to happen. If someone gets the drop on you, you're probably dead. Yeah. And you just get the three second respawn, you're back, and hopefully you spawn behind the guy who just killed you. And that's, I think, that how, the, you know, it feels very lethal and you wouldn't necessarily think of a game that feels very lethal as having a high skill floor because you're dying a lot. So it must be hard, but it's not. It's, mm. it's, it's, it's a lot more, um, random than that. Um, and I think that's interesting. Um, actually, kind of interesting to design a game around that where, you know, you get the kill cam that shows you how the, how your killer killed you. Um, if that just stayed on them after they kill you, 
and then now you get to spawn somewhere near them and you choose where <laughs> so you have a huge advantage against the person who killed you but only them it's like and you're so, being haunted basically yeah like. so whoever's getting the most kills has a lot of people who can just like <laughs> pounce on them at any time mm. yeah that's an interesting idea um a game um, i can sort of mention it because it's coming out on pc soon um but i think destiny has a very very good balance between accessible stuff and high skill cap stuff within the context obviously they're, they're changing some things about pvp for the sequel um but i really trust them on this because i think um halo was one of the last games of the modern era before the kind of revivalist wave of like 90s style sh- shooters like um tribes coming back briefly and lawbreakers and stuff halo was one of the last game series that still carried that torch for like a battle between two players is a dance destiny carried that torch from halo um so because uh, they're both by bungie and that is also a game where uh you know actually the the, the fact that they give you ultimate abilities and things inspired by mobas and sort of these big one-shot powers that can um net you some kills in, in a moment where you desperately need them that kind of thing that acts as a a skill floor raising mechanic because it means that even a player who struggles with kind of twitchy gunplay most of the time will occasionally just get access to a huge bomb or infinite flaming hammers or something that helps their team Mm. um in the way that they'll get a little killing spree every so often maybe once a match depends on the kind of mode you're playing but that's a kind of positive thing but the rest of it is quite a technical shooter with shitloads of room to um not only play with greater finesse, but also play with greater understanding of underlying systems in the kinds of loot you seek and the kind of loadout you build for yourself and the kinds of things you develop. That's one of the reasons I love Destiny so much is because it has both. Um, and they're sort of, and then you get the kind of interesting interactions where like a really, really good player can still shut down someone who's using their super, uh, or their ultimate. Um, which is a really cool thing then, because then you have the kind of, um, new player friendly catch up mechanic being actively counterable but only if you are absolutely amazing so there's you know what i mean or like you get lucky but like that's a nice i think that means that you never have that feeling that raising the skill floor is taking something away from the mm. the top of the game because it just creates an extra challenge for people who think they're good to get past like you know if you you think you're good but can you beat the person who suddenly got loads of bonus armor and now kills you in one hit for the next 10 seconds mm. and that's a really interesting thing so hopefully some of that will translate into the sequel which i'm very very excited about i don't know if anyone can tell um yeah any other skill ceilingy thoughts dota ah. <laughs> uh i mean god you talk like skill like dota is all skill ceiling forever like it, it, it's infinite skill ceiling and it basically doesn't have a like the floor is super low Mm. There's definitely lots of interesting variants within hero heroes and Dota in that you have heroes that have a much higher cap than others. Would you say there's a standout hardest to play? Invoker is probably the obvious one. Mm. Who's the guy who has to? He has like ten spells rather than the traditional four, but you have to create them by combining three elements, Magicka style on the fly. Uh, that's obviously a huge skill cap thing. Um, and then. You know, it tends to be the sort of flashy heroes with spells interact with each other in weird ways. Puck, as well as pretty high skill cap heroes, play well. Mm. But, um, the whole game is so hard that it's not, it doesn't, I don't feel like it necessarily counts. It's not like they added a super difficult hero to Overwatch where the floor is pretty high and therefore really stood out. It's like there are, there are even 
harder things within the hard game. You know what I mean? Like it's hard enough to play as it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and also Dota is kind of flexible because if you end up building a character where you're using lots of active items rather than passive items, then you've just given yourself like six extra abilities to manage anyway. So there's flexible skill ceiling slash floor within character builds in the context of a single match. So, which is in itself a complicated concept. <laughs> so even the way in which the game can become easier for people with certain item builds is itself hard to get your head around. Um, so yeah next question comes from travis who writes and this is a very good question intro whoop whoop it's the tom f is wrong klaxon again <laughs> i disagree with your assessment of that intro <laughs> i think it's great what's that the klaxon's happening again <laughs> <laughs> when, when when will it go off tom f travis writes said that he doesn't like any music in rts's as he often finds it i thematic- knew this is going to be about this <laughs> as he often finds it thematically jarring alongside mining some dirt or some such. However, I wonder if he also tars StarCraft 1's awesome soundtrack with the same philistinic brush. I get nostalgia chills whenever I hear that cheesy guitar lick alongside the weetzel weetzel of an SCV mining some crystals. It just works. And I just want to pause a second. If Travis, if you're the first person to describe the noise an SCV makes while mining minerals as weetzel weetzel, then that's actually might might genuinely be genius. It's brilliant. Uh, what's your favorite chills-inducing musical piece from a game? Mine's the trumpety trills over the Elder Scrolls for Oblivion menu. Mmm. Thanks, Travis, aka TJ Howes on Discord. In answer to his first question, um, my issue is with bombastic orchestral soundtracks. So I haven't played StarCraft 1, well, at least not since it came out. <laughs> uh, so I don't remember what the soundtrack is like, but if it wasn't a bombastic orchestral one that was super dramatic, then... Um... StarCraft 2 has the same thing. Okay, yeah, same I'm familiar with the Terran guitar. music from yeah. StarCraft 2. And that's, yeah, that's, that's quite laid back. I quite like that. Uh... And then to the so second... So you're conceding one... to being wrong then? No, I'm <laughs> 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 fucking... <laughs> Uh, well actually i don't remember what i said because i was drunk so maybe i did overstate my case but my <laughs> actual issue is with bombastic orchestral soundtracks that are overly dramatic during non-dramatic times fair enough um being uh well morrowind being my first Elder scrolls game that is the theme tune from that series that always gets me it was it's really the evolution of that theme tune throughout the series has been really cool because um morrowind is very slow and kind of mournful or sort of i don't know like reflective it was not in any way dramatic or exciting uh but it's the same tune as oblivion and skyrim and you know each time each time it actually gets more dramatic i don't know where they're going to go next because it'll just be like death metal for you end up at pirates of the caribbean if you make that soundtrack like <laughs> a little bit faster and slightly more dramatic uh, it goes in a very elfman place but i think my favorite bit of game music is the mirror's edge theme mm. um mm. And weirdly, As I think in my the favorite. Song or the well, I think my favorite use of it is actually in the initial trailer, <laughs> even mm. though it is in the game and it's it's used a good effect in the game. Um, uh, just the way it was used in that first trailer, it's just the instrumental version um, is just so beautiful and just like gives the whole place this unique feeling and atmosphere. I'm a big fan, as probably everyone knows, of. Um, I don't know if you know what the, the, the refrain is called because it appears in multiple different pieces of music. In the Mass Effect soundtrack, there is a a piece of music that is basically associated with Shepard and Spectres generally. Like, it's probably Shepard's theme, mm. I think, based on where it shows up. And I'm not going to sing it, but you, <laughs> it's... Um, I love the way that piece of... That, you know, a couple of bars is used over the course of the series in lots of different contexts. 
Um, it's it's the only piece of I think the the base the the main Mass Effect score that appears in the stuff that Clint Mansell did for the third game, because mm. um, it the, like it plays in a very slow and sad way as the Normandy's leaving Earth at the start of Mass Effect Three and doesn't really play again in Mass Effect Three until the ships leave the the relay to attack Earth at the end of the game and then you get for the first time in the game the full like bombastic kind of Shepard theme and it's fucking great I, I love that soundtrack. Um, and it also, it, it also is pretty, like, it's flexed in lots of different ways in Mass Effect 2, because obviously that game compromises Shepard in lots of different ways, but you don't really get the kind of full, like, we're fucking going boys, way <laughs> version of the soundtrack, which is what that's called, um, in Italian. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, until the suicide mission where again, it kicks in again, and that's, um, that's probably my favorite. I'm not really gonna get anything mm-hmm. I care about more than that, unless it's a Star Wars game, and then that doesn't count because it's a movie soundtrack. <laughs> John, any particularly standout musical moments? Um, yeah, but it's Skyrim, so I feel like it's kind of <laughs> wow. That series really knocked it out of the park. I really liked the the barbarian choir concept that their composer had for <laughs> Skyrim in particular, and um, I enjoyed the theme, um, like the Dragonborn from the soundtrack, and the Sovereign Guard one as well, which was kind of a slower but mm. similarly kind of chanty one. I enjoyed them when I found them in the game, but I really, really liked them when they popped up um, on my iPod when I was stomping through Fresh Snow at six o'clock in the morning <laughs> on the way to work, <laughs> which made that trip particularly epic. <laughs> Actually, I, um, I think both the Skyrim soundtrack and um, which was done by Jeremy Soule, I think he also did work for Dota. Mm. Um, I don't think he did the original soundtrack for Dota, but he did the Jeremy Soule pack. Um, and he's done some rad, really rad stuff. I actually really like, I was, that reminded me that I think the, the Dota score is really underrated. Mm. Um, the, they play it on an orchestra during the international and it's great. And it, it, for me, like, even though it's a bit weird that it's a sort of wizard sports and it doesn't really have like the story stuff you normally associate with the score. It's, um, for me, it's sort of part of the character of the game kind of mm. sounds a little bit like the Harry Potter theme in some ways, but slightly more epic, which is about right because it's like wizard school, but. A passing thought: The battlefield mm, has a very strong theme. Bum, ba, dum, bum yeah, thing. yeah, yeah. That was particularly good in the second one, I think. There are a couple that um, just really work at their particular moments. There's a little bit of music uh, after you come out of Ravenholm in Half-Life Two, mm. where you've just been through hell, and then you're getting out to the corner of Resistance holdout. There's a little bit of a firefight, and afterwards, there's just loads of injured people, and there's just a kind of really down vibe, and there's really like uh, uh, sort of sad um bit of music that's instrumental but just kind of i don't know there's something kind of comforting about it as well it's um a really just a really nicely judged moment um and i also really love um the use of uh will the circle be unbroken at the start of bioshock infinite mm. as you're yeah. going through that opening area it's just so like haunting and um kind of strange and magical i tell you what i speak in bioshock i think there should be a moratorium on like 30s and 40s music as soundtracks to apocalypse <laughs> games because bioshock falls into it a little bit fallout has done it for two games in a row um that's just banned now sorry did um fallout one or two do anything like that no they did for their um intro sequences right they they only had one song uh i think it was the ink spots for the first one hmm. 
and then something else for the second one. But that's where they that's where Bethesda p- kind of right. picked that up and ran with it for the radio stations. Um, I've always found the Deus Ex theme kind of weirdly. I, I like it, but it doesn't quite fit the world. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Because it's quite an ambiguous place full of sort of shadows and secrets. But the soundtrack sounds a bit like the x-men cartoon theme and the that, airwolf push my friend yes and you can't, once you're thinking of one you can't yeah i find that with one. x-men and i find that with x-men and deus ex pirates of the caribbean and skyrim um and um what was the other one? Oh, superman and star wars like trying mm. those two things you had it's, i mean they're both john williams <laughs> but um but yeah and then i was i thought it was I didn't realize that, I, that how weird the old soundtrack sounded to me until I finished Human Revolution for the first time because it plays over the credits. <laughs> like immediately, like after you get the post credits thing where like, you know, Bob Page alludes to the Denton project and then it basically just kicks in from the kind of the Human Revolution soundtrack, which is a lot more muted and kind of like what we would now think of as kind of like cyberpunky kind of techno kind of soundscapes and then someone mentions the dentons basically and it just kicks into like and it's yeah um that not quite that show tunesy but um <laughs> i think i did it on glee once <laughs> yeah, exactly. um I, yeah i'd watch dare sex the musical and that's not what that wasn't the question but nonetheless uh, any other music highlights before we move on nope gregor writes Dear Crates and Crowbars, more of a comment than a question, and certainly not a grudge. I've been listening to your pod for years, and I've always wondered why Segway, as in the wheelie bike monocycle thing, um, has become the word for leading to your next topic. I thought it had something to do with how smooth they glide. Imagine my wonder when I first read Segway, as in the word Segway, in print. So thanks for expanding my vocabulary. Greetings from Switzerland, Gregor. <laughs> <laughs> the idea that we might have been saying segway as in the vehicle to describe the smooth way well, someone just drifts from one topic well, to the no, other but, on a segway but presumably that's why it's called a segway right uh, yeah i suppose so like when they named the vehicle they must have been thinking of a smooth transition from one place to another yeah exactly like <laughs> yeah or like a way of getting out of a conversation <laughs> like, i'm just gonna lean let me just forward. segue to my house where you're not here <laughs> yeah exactly I have infinite patience for people who discover this because I thought uh, hyperbole was a sweet, awesome future sport for <laughs> Hyperbole, hyperbole <laughs> yeah. for about five years. Yeah. I um, read at least the first Harry Potter book thinking that her name was Hermione. <laughs> <laughs> so did I. <laughs> probably like, a lot of people. There's probably a decent yeah. number of people. Well, I, I, saw, I still, people still say it's like seg sometimes for segway. Yeah, I think idle thumbs do that on purpose, right? They, they so. call it like a sweet seg and people write into them occasionally saying, actually it's pronounced segway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, pedant baiting is, is a dangerous mm. sport in this environment. But in um, Ori? Uh, awry. I used to read that as awry <laughs> until I heard it said out loud. I think, and for probably a lot of, uh, people who mispronounce a word in their head, there's a period where you have heard it in real life, but for a while you think they're two different words and then you realize, no, oh shit, that's the same thing. <laughs> um, there's like, um, uh, melee is one that comes up a lot. Oh yeah. Cause like, there's, there's a lot of words that, for that like, legit there's a lot of words that i learned from games magazines like as a kid right and melee is almost certainly one of them because i don't think you encounter that word a lot unless but it comes up all the time in games um relative to any other context and it was i i thought it was melee for like the longest time yeah me too um 
and then yeah now it's it's obviously melee but you know you know pronunciation doesn't matter that much in fact if you listen if you're interested in people having completely different ideas how to say a word but never really addressing that they say it completely differently listen back like a couple of miniatures pods ago um we play a like a warhammer mini supplement called burning of prospero and me and tom pronounced prospero completely differently and i didn't realize this till i was editing the episode and it's never brought up but we neither of us have ever agreed on how to say this thing (laughs) both we, we split the box like I don't know how you know he says pros he says Prospero, and I say Prospero, and it's just I I I don't know who's right, so I've never bothered to like bring it up. <laughs> I did a little uh, dev blog video uh, that was kind of like talking through my thoughts about inventory um, that I didn't end up publishing because it was actually all a work in progress and I didn't know if I was going to do any of them. Um, and I say the word inventory so many times that I just go through every possible pronunciation: <laughs> inventory, inventory, inventory. <laughs> Words. Sorry, I don't have any more. <laughs> Nowhere to go from there. No, nope. just more words. There's like, yeah, there's no, there's no smooth transition out of this. <laughs> we already had a word for that. I'm gonna bicycle over to the next question, <laughs> uh, which comes from Sam, who writes, "Dear Kuwait and Cranberra, I hope this finds you well, and not at the end of an upsettingly long list of questions. What games have you played which contain the most genuinely human-seeming interactions between player and NPC?" I'm particularly interested in games which successfully sell the idea of the player as therapeutic to an NPC, but any would be interesting. Kind regards, Slam, Sam, Slam, Slam, (laughs) sorry Sam, your name is Slam now, slash rakish. Uh, P.S. I ate peanut butter and jam sandwiches intermittently as a child, but was aware that they represented an American cultural and culinary perversion. <laughs> Sorry, Chris. <laughs> I'd like to imagine him just having one peanut butter and jam sandwich that he ate intermittently, but every now and then he'd remember that it was an American perversion, so cast yeah, it exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, hmm, So, uh, meaningful human feeling interactions between players and I, NPCs. I can't think of a therapeutic one, but... Um, uh, one that really caught me off guard and, and made me smile was um, in Dr. Langaskov, the tiger and the terribly cursed emerald. Um, it has one of those things where the game is telling you to do a thing, but you also have the option to not do the thing. And if you don't do the thing, you get new lines of dialogue about how you haven't done the thing yet. And uh, you can intentionally defy the narrator slash Simon Amstel um, again and again and again. And Simon Amstel's reading of, of all the sort of increasingly exasperated lines about this um he's very good at sort of doing that in a genuine way and he's exasperated but he also just starts laughing at at how ridiculous it is that you haven't done this and that was a very uh surprising and unusual feeling is that was to feel like you made the npc laugh like no one laughs in games really Mm. i guess maybe you could say that for the interaction with the stanley parable announcer as well particularly when you're kind of falling into its deliberate traps it's kind of what can feel like a very organic reaction to what you're doing, even if it's obviously, it's not personal, it's very impersonal, but it still feels organic in a way that feels like there's a real person there kind of mm. making fun of you, which is special. Not really the, particularly the kind of power dynamic that Sam's talking about, but still, um, hmm. I think, I do think that there are, you know, individual conversations, plenty of them in, in, in RPGs, whether that's Bioware games or, or Infinity Engine games that can have this quality because the, the conversations are well written enough. Um, I appreciate that now I don't really have the sense that they're like 
didn't ever really feel particularly human to me, but that's because I'm so used to that method of storytelling that I'm seeing it as a game and as writing as a conversation tree. And I'm kind of conscious of what I'm doing, but I feel like sometimes it's worth reminding myself that quite a lot of people kind of encounter these things are encountering these things for the first time, or they're not quite so kind of, you know, embedded in the sort of theory surrounding the design of these things. And so those, even though I think maybe we'd be reluctant to say like, Oh, it's human because there's no dynamic element to it. It is just a tree that you are picking at can still feel um, genuine. If it's sufficiently well-written that you feel like your choices are having consequences and, and so on. I really like um, Deus Ex Human Revolutions. Uh, they call it like conversational combat internally. Oh, like the, um, the sniffing pheromone stuff. Well, without the pheromone mod, um, when you just have to argue the point and you get, uh, it's really just like a, for me, like a masterclass in how to do this dialogue stuff because, you know, it's a failable conversation. You can fuck it up. You can use the wrong tack and it will, it will go badly. Uh, the responses you have, there's always three and they're broken down into broad categories. Um, which usually is a bad thing. Like I hate it when you just get a, broad term and you don't know what you're going to say but when you mouse over the broad term it tells you exactly what you're going to say so you know word for word what you're going to say and it, that really felt like you win those when your argument is genuinely persuasive to the kind of person you're talking to and the specifics of the situation like that was one of the only dialogue systems where really i was not guessing what the designer had in mind and thinking oh which is the good option here which is the evil option here which is the funny option here it was, I was really thinking about the merits of the point and what this person believes and how, what would most appeal to them. Um, and I would fail sometimes, uh, not necessarily the whole conversation, but just you would say something and it was obvious from their response that that did not work with them. And that was a really interesting experience because you don't really see that in like movies and stuff. Um, they don't really, they do the conversation where person A persuades person B of their point, or they do the conversation where there was no way person A was ever going to be able to persuade person B. It's never that person A fucks it up. It's never that like, oh, they could have done that, but they just said the wrong thing. They didn't use the right approach. Um, and so that, like, it doesn't, it still doesn't fulfill like the, th there is one conversation in, in human evolution that you could say where you kind of do provide a therapy type service to somebody but it's actually one of the worst ones in the game it's one of the ones that rings really false because changing it someone's mind on the spot in a conversation just really hard sell it's never that convincing i think but a lot of the other conversations are good because you don't change their mind because you try it and they just it doesn't work for them there are definitely moments in life is strange that are very good for this including probably the only example i can think of is a genuinely i think that's probably the best place to go if you're looking for like therapeutic um <clears throat> like uh, conversations between the player and a vulnerable NPC. Um, pointedly, I think it's the the end of episode two or the end of episode three has a brilliant example of that, which has a very similar thing to the, um, like a lot of the best conversations in Life is Strange are very similar to that Deus Ex system because they are failable conversations. And in some cases, if you've been thorough in your walking around and talking to people and getting clues and learning more information, you can get the magic piece of information that makes things a lot easier. But actually... At a lot of key moments, it doesn't give you that. Like, you just have to say what you feel is the right thing out of the options you've been given to the person, and they react relatively realistically. So I think that's probably a good choice for, for that particular kind of interaction. And also because you are... Also because it's a little bit... Obviously, you have time travel powers. Um, 
it's a little bit more grounded than most stories like this. So you're not having arguments about like dystopian sci-fi things that might have gone wrong or wizards or dragons and stuff. It tends to be kind of school stuff. And that I think as well lends itself to feeling a little bit more human. Mm. Next up, Damien writes, dear Creighton Crowbar, no one in uh, Australia eats peanut butter and jam sandwiches. That's good to know. Also, Tom's Southerner Woodlice are called Slaters in Australia, but I'm going to petition the name to be changed to Roly Pigs. <laughs> Damien. Slaters is a good one. I'm making a public service announcement here that Woodlice and things called Roly Polies or Pillbugs are separate species. Um, one of them, the Roly Polies, can turn into, can roll up on itself as a defense mechanism and Almost every other species, similar species of woodlice, can't. Hmm. So you should be, you should never ever try and fold a woodlice in half to help it, <laughs> to like remind it how to roll into a ball. <laughs> I've been doing that all day today. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So the ones I've seen um, uh, did roll up, like they would curl up. Mm. I didn't witness them rolling as a method of locomotion. <laughs> That, is that a thing? No, no, it's that's like Sonic the Hedgehog. A purely, and <laughs> um, with which species was in the Phantom Menace? <laughs> do you not remember those droids? The droidica droids. Oh right. Why do I know? <laughs> <laughs> I knew Chris would know. Um, yeah, and if you see Sonic the Hedgehog, don't try and fold him to help him. <laughs> if he's ready to spin dash, he will do it in his own time. <laughs> If you um if you do it at an opportune time, you might disturb him and then the mother won't take him back. <laughs> uh next question comes from Alex. Well, he says Hello I don't really have many, but here's the worst I th- worst thing I do regularly. I call Warhammer forty K Warty Forty K. I shall burn my models and computer immediately. Alex <laughs> That's very good. It is. And that's all we've got to say about. <laughs> um, Patrick writes, Dear Plort and Slime Bar, once a year or so... Oh, hang on. No, once a year or so. Sorry, I pronounced that really weirdly for no reason. Uh, my friends and I hold a LAN and usually slip in a few rounds of AL... Well, Action Half-Life 2, universally referred to as Action Half-Life... For fuck's sake. <laughs> Universally referred to as Action Half Knife 2. In all the years we've never seen another player online, what are your favourite social or multiplayer games to wheel out of retirement in this way? And which game do you wish you had a dialer posse for, which even the close friends have moved on from? Pip's old version of Dota springs to mind. P.S. Feel free to gut this email to add to your list of reader names for games. I was kind of phoning in the question. Patrick. <laughs> Tommy pointed out the the irony of phoning in an email. Yeah, <laughs> writing an email to say that you're phoning in the question. Maybe it's actually would be more effort than writing an email. <laughs> he wrote it on his phone. <laughs> yeah, maybe. You do that now. Um, funnily enough, like, you know, if I could sort of uh, magic together the old team and the old game, it would be Action Quake 2. <laughs> I never played the Action Half-Life games, but Action Quake 2 is the one that clicked for us and, and God were knives part of it. Um, I still remember the time when on, I want to say the map was called Urban 2, uh, and it's like a city street, and there's a skyscraper in it, and there's a sniper hole at the top of the skyscraper, and it's a great place to be as a sniper, because it's really dark, 
and you have a sniper rifle. But it's technically possible to throw a knife that high. And one time I did it and I <laughs> killed a sniper in there and he was furious. <laughs> and that was the the start of my love of throwing knives. <laughs> this is a safe space, Tom, and you can confess. <laughs> <laughs> um, I love Quake Deathmatch and I like Deathmatch Classic because Deathmatch Classic is Quake Deathmatch. And it's nice to know that someone is always still playing that pretty much. <laughs> like it'll only be like 10 people, but you can still get a game of that. So it's not really the same as like wanting to get the gang back together, but yeah, I would happily land party Quake DM for sure. Um, to be honest, most classic FPSs that I love still have like enough people playing them that if you log on, there will be like somebody somewhere on some weird mod mm. or some weird map. Maybe finding vanilla game is harder now than it used to be. I'm going to be self-indulgent and say the hidden. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. A mod that I helped make. And the reason that my group of uni friends made it in the first place was because we enjoyed playing it over LAN so much. And we kind of built on a previous version that another friend had made. And that, I think, was that was in its natural habitat in a LAN. Mm. Online, it did not... It didn't work so much, especially with randos. But when it's, yeah, a bunch of you in the same room shouting at each other, working, yeah, it was great. You know, I think I wrote about The Hidden quite early in my PC Gamer career for our download section at the back of the mag. Hmm. I'm pretty sure I did. It is pretty old. It was, <laughs> but was there a remake by somebody? Am I thinking of something else? Uh, or like, it, or like, inspired by. You may be thinking probably. of Crisis Three, ripping it off. <laughs> yeah, you're thinking of Evolve. No, no, there was a, there was like a latter day. It probably wasn't because I played the hit at the time, but like, probably was like it, it got nicked. Well, it got um, rebuilt in Gary's mod a few mm. times, um, just because uh, they could nick, borrow all the assets and just reconstruct it. Right. And I was in kind of uneven minds about that because I mean. A, they're nicking all our fucking stuff. <laughs> uh, but B, that would, they had a, a massively uh, larger player base, so more people played it. Mm. So, yeah. mm. And it was always free, right? It was always free. It was always yeah. classic mod era. So. Mm. But yeah, I just remember writing about it, and I didn't know you at the time. Mm. And that's weird, because that's how time works and experience <laughs> and being in a similar space. Yeah. I do kind of miss uh, Zombie Strike Source. Which was literally just a script for Counter-Strike Source uh, that made you and whoever else you played with, uh, it was best with one other person any more than it got too easy. Uh, you would be counter-terrorists, you had normal Counter-Strike weapons, the terrorist team would be 32 players and they all only have knives. <laughs> and there was no like zombie skins or anything, but they just, by the, sh the restrictions of that setup they acted like zombies because <laughs> all they could do was run at you stab you and just standing back to back with a friend and just mowing down this horde as they came at you um obviously ultimately left for dead uh you know uh, went big on i'm trying to live out that fantasy but i still think i probably had more fun with zombie strike source it was just more satisfying to like uh shooting the zombies in left for dead are like tissue paper they just kind of disintegrate when bullets hit them at all um and it's much more about the special infected who will have unique attacks and stuff this was much more of a kind of just raw, like a lot of bodies versus very few bodies <laughs> and uh, brutally mowing them down. It was, uh, yeah, it was cool. I probably play 
AVP2 multiplayer again, if, if anyone. <laughs> With the full life cycle. Yeah. 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 <laughs> That's a great idea that never really appeared anywhere else. That's where you start as a face hugger and you have yeah. to like eat cats to <laughs> turn into. You have to face hug a player to, oh, okay. to yeah. become a, a baby xenomorph. Yeah. The, the, the single players where you had to like eat cats to yeah. get bigger. Like someone had to draw the short straw and be the human in that, though. So. Hmm. Random personal trivia. So when I was a teenager, I ran a skinning site, like uh, making skins for stuff, particularly, mm. well, maps and skins. But I got really into making skins for AVP because it was super easy. Um, and I, uh, like, probably no one ever downloaded any of the things I'd made. But I once got an email from, this is back in the day when, like, like a family would have one email address, you know what I mean? Like from the AOL account or something like that. And I got a really long email from like, I'm making the name up, but it was like the Patrickson family. And it was like from all of them about how much they enjoyed my like Pharaoh predator. (laughs) And like jungle camo mini gunner. (laughs) And, um, cause it was just me like nicking ideas from Warhammer and like painting them over aliens and predators. But you know, like someone liked that and they <laughs> but i just love the idea of like mum and dad and the kids all all enjoy a good round of avp2 i'd play yeah i'd play avp2 with them i think mm. <laughs> <laughs> our final question comes from dave who writes dear cnc I am diabetic and was recently told that it had begun to affect my eyes. I'm not worried. There is no risk to my eyes. And if I look after myself, there's no reason there should be in the future. However, having my perceived invulnerability challenged has been an uncomfortable experience, especially when in relation to the fragility of sight. It made me consider my chosen hobby. It is so dependent on visuals that the thought of not being able to engage with the majority of games is a scary prospect. And I consider myself lucky there are others whose circumstances are so much worse. My question is this. While there have been some games that have explored the concept of visual impairment, there are not many that I can think of. Do you feel there's a consideration that could be viable in a commercially successful game or series of games? If you were to indulge me in a bonus question, do you think there is scope for a VR game where the main protagonist is in a wheelchair, uh, i.e. a detective adventure or similar? It could be an opportunity to explore the issues surrounding disabled access in a way that would be more immediate and experiential in a context that would encourage people to engage with the issue. It's not my intention to trivialise an incredibly important issue, but if it made players like myself who are unaware of the problems think about the wider implications of poorly designed access or other similar issues, it might result in some positive change, however minor. I really hope I haven't expressed myself. Sorry, I really hope I have expressed myself in a way that doesn't seem too ignorant or insensitive. Thanks for the amazing pod, Dave. Yeah, there was, there was like a spate of games about where you play a blind protagonist and they all had different ways of, of sort of mm. basically visualizing uh, what information you would have. Um I can't remember, um, I know that at least one of them did not do that well <laughs> from the reviews I read. Um, but I guess that VR would be, uh, quite good way of doing that because you have proper positional hearing. Like you can, um, hmm. uh, moving your head affects what direction you'll hear the sound from. So if you, if you're not sure about where direction it's coming from, you can move your head to find out and, uh, narrow it down. Well, because they're saying, like, if you are blind, then you need it. You can do it with headphones, obviously. You don't need, um, and I think there was, I remember ages ago running a story on PC Gamer about, I think, games for blind people that used positional audio exclusively to kind of mm. create puzzles and, and environments and things. And I, I will, 
tell you what, this is not something I can do off the top of my head, but I will, I will show notes it because I, I'm pretty sure I haven't made that up. <laughs> but that's an interesting thing. And I, I mean, so part of the question was commercial viability, and that's a tricky thing because I mean, define commercially viable. But yeah, I mean, like commercially mainstream, no, <laughs> that probably won't happen. Um, and then you know, commercial viability beneath that is just a question of how much you spend. Um, the wheelchair idea is interesting as well. I think that there's a lot of mileage in, you know, game experiences as a, as a way of, um, uh, giving you always an imperfect and, uh, basically sugar-coated insight into, uh, a different experience to your own, but it can still be powerful. It definitely has, um, uh, just being put in a situation in, even in a very disconnected and, and fake way can open your mind to new things um and you'd have to be just very careful about how you pitch it and make sure you don't pretend that it's the real experience and that you're in any way after this you know can um imagine what it's really like um yeah you'd have to it would be a weird thing where like you would want a seated vr experience right you uh, for a wheelchair uh game if you had room scale the player could stand up if they wanted to um and so you'd have to actually have like measures in place to prevent that like if you go above a certain height they black out your vision or something uh, it's weird the like, persistent problem with vr is you can't really stop the player doing anything so you have to figure out what happens if the player does something that isn't possible in the world uh that you've given them yeah hmm. interesting problem and that is all of the questions we have time for this week. If you'd like to send us a question for a future episode, you can do so by emailing us at questionsandcrateandcrowbar.com or tweeting us at Crate and Crowbar. And something that's coming up a little bit more regularly now than it has done in the past is um, we're getting a lot of extremely long questions. We had a couple this week that were north of a thousand words and in some cases double that. Um, if your question is extremely long and can't be easily truncated then we're probably not going to be able to read it out like that's not i mean rules are there to be broken we've managed it in the past sometimes and um, it's really great to receive people's sort of extended thoughts on stuff but um if if your priority is getting a question read out and answered on air then just as a, a another public service announcement it's a lot more likely to happen if it's a couple of sentences simply because of time my ability to read uh, which flags at times and i'm responsible for that that's not your fault but nonetheless it's a thing and similar and, and simply the fact that we are getting more questions than we have done in the past which is nice one of the reasons we haven't done a question call for the last two weeks and so with time as an issue um it can be harder to, to devote that time to, to reading out something that's super long a couple of paragraphs can work if it's obviously it's all it's all it's all important but yeah north of north of a thousand words is an article <laughs> at that point so so yeah, just uh, bear that in mind if you've got any kind of burning inquiries for the floor. Uh, but yes, please do send us your your questions and thoughts and answers to any arguments that we have. Uh, if you'd like to follow us on YouTube, you can do that at creatingcrowbar.com forward slash YouTube. That's where you'll find our ongoing Bloodborne series. You can also hang out with our community. I just knocked my microphone. Hope you didn't hear that. On Discord, you find the link for our Discord channel in the show notes and on the website at creatingcrowbar.com. Creating Crowbar is very, very kindly supported by our Patreon backers. 
who allow us to do the pod and the miniatures pod, which is going up next week, and the Budborn thing that I just mentioned, and hopefully some new things coming in the future. We are plodding towards some extra, extra specials eventually. Um, you find out more details about that at patreon.com forward slash crate and crowbar. And if you would like to follow us as individuals, I'm on Twitter at C Thurston. That's C-T-H-U-R-S-T-E-N. Tom is... I'm at Pentadac, P-E-N-T-A-D-A-C-T. And John. John R, J-O-H-N underscore A-double-R. Thanks, Thanks for listening, everybody. everybody. Is it really crate and crowbar.com slash YouTube? Did I say that? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, I wasn't confident enough to actually bring it up at the time. <laughs> it's a youtube.com forward slash Crate and Crowbar, Tom. That sounds right. I hope Pip never listens to this. Me too.